1: we wish to express our gratitude to the listeners who are looking for a better future in the world of cinema by looking at the past as a point of analysis to what we can learn from and where we can grow and evolve beyond. To them, and to the lovers of adventure, lovers of pure escapism, lovers of unadulterated entertainment, lovers of the ridiculous and the bizarre, and all the realms of film in between that there is to love, this episode is respectfully dedicated If we overlooked any sizable groups of film lovers, we apologize. Our bad, dude. Sincerely, The Podcasters. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. What's inside the theater this evening? Holy Ballyhoo, Batman! That's right. Tonight the review is going to tackle that dynamic duo that took the late 60s by storm. Two sworn protectors of Gotham City against a rogues gallery so villainous that the vile vitriol they vent is nothing short of vast. Luckily, whether on a small screen or big, the Cape Crusader and his youthful ward will always be on alert to slide down the bat poles and fight these fiendish foes. And they shall do that yet again as we go back to one of their legendary tales of crime fighting with Batman the Movie. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight your Bat-Your-Buds.
0: Everyone! Flee for your lives! Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy superlatives, Batman! It's really exciting. Soon, very soon, Batman and I will be batapulking right out of your TV sets and onto your theater screens. That's right, Robin. Our first full-length motion picture feature in color opens a whole new world of thrills. The big screen gives us more space on land, sea, and in the air to challenge the most cataclysmic collection of super criminals ever. Their minimum objective must be the entire world. And here are the dastardly villains the Catwoman. Oh, you're going to see the perfect crime when I get Batman in my claws. The Joker. Have you heard this one? It'll kill you, Batman. <laughs> the Penguin. There are two eggs this wily bird is going to scramble, Batman and Robin. <laughs> the Riddler. Question, who's going to make the feathers fly and knock Batman and Robin out of the sky? See, the new weapons in the Bat Arsenal combat the forces of evil. The Batcopter. The exploding man-eating shark.
2: Holy oh. sardine!
0: The relentless Megaton Magnet, the unholy Quartet secret submarine. Fire one! Fire one! The Batboat in action. The deadly Disintegrator. The attack on the Batcave. Holy hallucination! You'll blast through the skies (laughs) on these mad, manned missiles. And you'll be with me, Robin, at the Bat Scanner, eavesdropping on Batman's romance. And you'll shudder at the death-dealing Polaris missiles. Brace yourself, Robin. This could be the end. And that's just a sample of the exciting exploits ahead in our first feature motion picture. Holy memoranda, folks! Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking, Robin.
1: Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, Batmania was not just a phenomenon in 1989 and 2008, for The Dark Knight's first bout of gigantic cross-media success came with the arrival of a campy take on the adventures of the world's greatest detective for television. Headed by producer William Dozier, the show captured the public's attention and the proposed film he intended to make before the series began would be brought to fruition during the summer hiatus, bringing a legacy of big-screen adventures of Batman that has endured far beyond the expectations of anyone alive then. But what's the significance and relevance of this take on Batman in a world where the camp has been replaced with sincerity? How has it been a stepping stone to the world of superhero films that have grown beyond mere confines of youthful entertainment? And how does this film begin to buck the trends of Hollywood's past into a world where the future would be multi-platform, we cannot solve this peculiar puzzle alone. With us today is a filmmaker, graphic designer, and podcaster whose films in Colorado have captured the hearts of many a movie maker and movie goer, and whose show, Real Nerds Podcast, gives him a weekly chance to expound his and many other thoughts on the world of movies today. Please welcome Bradley Haig, or Bat Brad. <laughs>
3: Well, you have made another grave mistake inviting <laughs> me onto your podcast because I am here to ruin this classy show.
1: You, you, you can't ruin anything, sir. You, you, you actually—if nothing—you bring more, more joy to people's lives than you might give yourself credit for. You are very uh, encouraging when it comes to people coming on the show, and you certainly took me to your, <laughs> to your dumb heart. <laughs> <laughs> not yeah. dumb. What's, what's not the word not today.
3: No. You've made a huge error. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: Now. So w- the reason why you might be referring to that particular gumption of it is so this started initially as Shamley silhouette, which went on the real nerds podcast feed. And you were very, very instrumental in having that happen because you showed me the ins and outs of uploading a podcast, which I didn't fully understand the uh, the amount of work that went into it each yeah. and every week for real. So you paying an ass. Yeah, exactly. And so when I started doing Ballyhoo myself, you were the recipient of several texts going like, "I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I'll never ever, I'll never push you again." <laughs> um, and um, not that I don't think I was ever like super pushy. I don't know. But, no, it's and, yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah it, in the
3: grand scheme of things, it's it's not that hard of work. But when you've got like dozens of other projects going on, it's just like oh, cool, one more thing. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, it's not it's not like you destroyed my life <laughs> doing it. <laughs> so it took everything from me, <laughs> and I, I'm glad you figured it out because now you, you you're autonomous. You can do it yourself,
1: yeah, exactly. I'm on an I'm on an auto uh, autopilot, so to speak, with it each and every week. So, um, but
3: this week I started getting real nerds on YouTube. Ooh. So now I've added another step in my my process of like it used to be put it on the iTunes feed, put it on um, the website, and now it's got to go on YouTube as like a video file. Yeah. And it's just like knock it off Brad what are you doing yourself (laughs) you got 500 episodes to do now
1: the most recent version of this was we were doing film explosion 1981 and I think it was two days before or a day before you were like why don't we YouTube live stream this and I was like I don't know like what are we oh no it was we were going to do Facebook first and then you were yeah, Facebook live yeah then you figured out YouTube and you were just like I need a guinea pig and I was like at the house and I was just like give me five minutes (laughs)
3: Well, for years, I've always wanted to do the Film Explosions as video cast, but, you know, I'd spend so much time just getting the Blu-rays ready for the show that I'd run out of time of, like, thinking about how many cameras we got to set up downstairs, and really no one else really wants to be on camera anyway, but I just look at our YouTube page, and there's other Real Nerds properties, like, (laughs) aping our cred, and, you know, they have, like, 500 videos on it with a 1,000 followers, and... You know we've been there for almost 10 years and we've got like 53 followers and
1: you know 30 videos it's just kind of pathetic it's why lawsuits need to happen there's a lot <laughs> multiple lawsuits that's why yeah. i tried to come up with a name that was absolutely so convoluted that nobody would ever try to ape it <laughs> that's right it's <laughs> um, kind of
3: like how nebula decisions works
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Nebulous Visions Multimedias versus Domain. I, I, I can never pronounce it correctly.
3: Yeah, not many people can. <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe they will now that your books are on Amazon, apparently. What the fuck was that about?
3: <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Like, I, for the first time in a long time, I Googled myself uh-huh. <laughs> to see, like, how Google's ranking my stuff. Uh, for the most part, Real Nerds and Nebulous Visions both come up. Like, the whole page is just our stuff, which is great. But there's this one listing for Amazon for the nebulous galaxy book that i wrote and i was like okay interesting and there it was on amazon like the picture of the book and it's sold by some apparently some ups store mailbox um did they have like
1: leftover copies of your book or something no or? Th-
3: there's only three in existence i printed them all and i you know one's a backup one's on my shelf or two two are backups and one's on my shelf uh because they're like six bucks to make when you self-publish them through lulu or whatever mm-hmm um but the Amazon page says they have three new copies and two used ones i
1: i wh- what why I d I, I didn't
3: I, give anybody any so there can't be used ones um
1: unless Lulu press made like backup copies for themselves and then that intern.
3: Well, through Lulu, you can sell through their website. So I did some digging around, and apparently there's this thing called drop shipping, which is this is a great topic for your movie show. Um, <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> Let's
1: get some get something interesting. Yeah, coming. if
3: you ever find the listeners ever find their, their their book on Amazon, this might help you narrow down the search. Um, I guess there's a thing called drop shipping where some company will just list your book on Amazon for an inflated price. Like I said, it cost six dollars for me to get it. They're selling it for forty five. Um, so if someone buys it from that listing, I still get paid because they go to Lulu buy my book and then mail it to themselves and then mail it to the customer and then take that, what? $30 a wow. profit. Wow. That's yeah. That's bizarre. Which doesn't seem legal to me.
1: No, this seems like some kind of scheme that it it's not,
3: but it's common enough that, you know, people have Reddit threads of like, Hey, this has also happened to me. <laughs> wow. And it keeps happening.
1: That's This yeah. that sounds like a convoluted Danny Ocean plot that 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 clearly would not make it onto a big screen. You're just like nah, this is too complicated. Like Yeah. I, I
3: thought drop shipping was just like you drop it off somewhere and then they ship it. Yeah. But that's
1: Actually, I take that back. This actually feels like some. This feels like something that would be stuck into the overall grander plot of The Big Short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, let's explain a bunch of financial details and also drop shipping,
3: <laughs> or maybe a plot by the
1: Penguin. Ooh, <laughs> what a way to segue into it! So now, I I, I want to finish that second part of this though, because so when you came on to Shamley, I wanted you on there because we've been friends for years. You're my podcasting mentor along with Ryan and, uh, and I guess James too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? James is there too.
3: It's a little forgettable. Cause he has been on the show regularly for about J- two years now.
1: Yeah. James is, James is a life mentor too. So like that he, sometimes he occupies a different space in my life, but, um, but no, you, um, uh, you were very upfront going like, I don't know what about Hitchcock I'd talk about. So I gave you two ones that don't have the same amount of expectation on them that psycho or the birds does um and you were very upfront and honest and I appreciated that on the show because I liked getting a different perspective into Hitchcock from somebody who doesn't have this but this isn't just a Hitchcock thing it's also golden age hollywood in general this is not your predisposed subject so asking the question what is your experience with golden age hollywood I already know the answer but would you mind kind of telling the ballyhoo audience what it is
3: uh yeah pretty much like in college um you know as a kid I didn't I wasn't introduced to a lot of golden age stuff um mm-hmm. probably the looney tunes or mickey mouse cartoons um were the most <laughs> the oldest things i got to watch and then you know i was on nickelodeon and comedy central after that mm-hmm. um but in college i started i worked briefly at a hollywood video mm-hmm. so i could rent as movies as many movies as i wanted so i started hitting all the classics you know modern classics 70s 80s and then a couple um you know when the dvds of like gone with the wind wizard of oz I'd seen Wizard of last before, but like Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, mm-hmm. like those I picked up because they're beautiful sets. You know, oh yeah, Oh, Citizen Kane. I got that one too.
1: Um, <laughs> we how I, I love that movie. But how quick did you did it take for you to fall asleep in Citizen Kane? <laughs> I didn't like. <laughs> I was able to stay up
3: <laughs> for a, more hours back then. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I I watched them all all the way through. Pretty okay. Like, yeah. I mean, go, Gone with the Wind was like four hours, but. I just kind of bumped into. I would find things I just didn't like about them that much. Like Scarlett O'Hara's pretty awful character. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Citizen Kane is fine, but also like, Kane is is a dick too. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and then Casablanca was good, you know, but it's it's a romance, and I don't
1: like. <laughs> romance is that much but I have told you before you don't need to just look at it as a romance you also look at it as a movie where Humphrey Bogart learns how to kill Nazis <laughs> yeah <laughs> or makes a choice I guess is a, uh, is a more classier way of saying that but
3: they're all still like beautiful films like I appreciate the filmmaking of them and the time they're in you know um, I also subscribe to a thing of like you know just because you were first to the gate doesn't mean you did it the best yes um, like a lot of p- those people just came out of theater and so they all used their theater knowledge to make movies. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like the seventies and eighties where people like Spielberg and like they moved the camera, you know, it wasn't like a,
1: right. Well, the in tech stage, y- yeah. yeah, stage bound. I mean, technically golden age Hollywood move the camera, but not, in yeah. the, but not in the way that Spielberg, Scorsese and uh, Lucas and Coppola were doing.
3: Yeah. I mean, and there's also like independent films from, you know, the forties and fifties and stuff that are, um, that do that. But it's all the stuff that people highly regard that was still stuck in that mm-hmm. the very specific Hollywood process because, you know, it, 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 that stuff made it look classy, you know. Yeah. So.
1: Exactly. And there and there is a grit and a grime that you get in the New wa- in the American New Wave that is that is uh limited in golden age Hollywood. Yeah. Um
3: And there's also too like the cameras are so enormous back then they couldn't, you know attach it to a car or something like, or like on a mirror, you know, that
1: would be insane or get it tried. under the bed, you
3: know, <laughs> without building like a rig or something. You yeah. Know? Well, so.
1: the, you talked about citizen Kane. I mean, this is not the only, this wasn't the only film in golden age Hollywood to do this, but Kane kind of gets credited with innovating it because of it's, it's, um, popularity, <clears throat> but this, there's a scene and I I'm, not, I'm sure you won't remember it necessarily, but, when after Cain loses the election, there's a scene from ground from below the ground level looking up at Jedediah and Kane as uh Jedediah is drunk and he's, you know, calling Kane out, going like, You talk about the people as if you own them. And that shot has been regarded as like one of those innovative shots that Wells did where and the way they did it was they dug out the floor of the studio and dug below the, the paneling of the floor and put mm-hmm. the camera in there. The camera's bulky. It's not It's not as massive as a Technicolor camera, but it's still a camera. It's still massive. Yeah. So like that's the amount of effort you'd have to do to get those shots. There's like instances of it in *The Public Enemy*, and I'm still trying to figure out where or like how much they would have had to dig in order to do that in the 30s. Um, Yeah. But
3: when I did the Paramount Night Tour, they showed us the Hitchcock set where I forget what movie it was, but like the whole street is like built higher than normal because. Um, I wish I would remember what movie is, but is it Rear Window? I think it's Rear Window. Yeah, because uh, that's
1: one where they built an entire apartment complex, like a, a grid, like a uh, an apartment uh, block in inside the studio. It's like a it was like a fucking massive feat. I'm glad that it still technically exists. So. Yeah, they don't own the rights to that movie, but. <laughs> uh,
3: but yeah, it was there, and like, yeah, it's like got a. You know, it's, it's like a Muppets thing where there's, like, space underneath to do stuff, so.
1: Yeah, and now I'm wanting rear window with Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> S- Hi-ho, there's a murderer across the street there.
3: <laughs> but, yeah, so- it's like, uh, back then, it's it just much so much more of a pain in the ass to move a camera around. So, obviously, you know, people would probably be like, Ugh. Let's just do it this way, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At
1: point, really yeah. yeah. At this point, they're not even. really important? Yeah. At this point, they're not even going to build those sets anymore. They're just going to be like, "Well, we can just use that uh, CGI backdrop landscape yeah. that the Mandalorian is using." Which yeah, you've seen. You've seen the video with that, right? Yeah. Like, That shit's fucking insane. I Remember I
3: being in college and them talking about like that's where movies are headed. and Just be like, it's mind blowing.
1: Yeah, it's it's insane. It's not something I'm like thrilled about, but it's it's something I'd love to learn how to utilize it down the line. Yeah. Um, but. Now this leads into today's selection, though, because <clears throat> I gave you the I gave you a premiere invite. Like like everybody on the show that we do each week, real nerds, uh, got an invite right away. So Henry's been on, Ryan's been on, James will, James will be on eventually for Plan Nine from Outer Space and Forbidden Planet double feature. He stops having babies. Yeah, <laughs> he needs to. James needs to stop having sex and start talking about cinema. Mm-hmm. Like that's give her wife, wife a break, man. <laughs> I'm so glad that Brooks probably won't listen to this. Um, <laughs> um, but um, I, I actually, like, I, I told you about, like, a couple of films I had in mind for you, and but you pulled out one that I I didn't think about talking about. It was, like, the furthest <laughs> thing from my mind. You were like, I could talk Batman 66. And a, a light bulb kind of went off because th- the, the discussion around superheroes... And cinema is super prevalent because of somebody I'm a fan of and the times he puts his foot in his mouth. <laughs> uh, but also it's 66. So it's still within the guidelines and whatnot. And I thought this would what was your cutoff here. 69, 68. 68. Um, but, but it was, but to me, what was interesting is like, this is like a good way to tap into something that you are passionate about. Because as long as I've known you, you are a fan and certainly a bigger fan than me of Batman. Um, so I wanted to ask what your, what your history with Batman was and into that, your experience, your first experience with Batman 66 TV or movie.
3: Yeah. I don't remember when I officially watched the movie, but I do know that when Batman 89 came out, my dad took me to see it. Um, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. And then I guess at the same time or relatively soon after, um, the family channel, which I don't know what it's called today. I think it's
1: freeform. Oh, uh, it was the I, Fox family at some point. Fox family. Cha- well, Fox ABC Fa- family. I, I remember Fox kids. Was Fox kids the one that had the animated series? Yeah, but that
3: was on like channel 13. There That's, was like a separate channel called the family channel. I think it was like, this was in Florida. This was like, I think station oh, okay. 21 or something, but it was like before, it was like when cable was still like not packaged, you know, it was kind of like the wild west of cable. Yeah, Exactly. So, yeah, there's this uh, channel called The Family Channel, and they had the reruns of Batman on it, Batman 66. And um, also, weirdly, I don't I guess at a bookstore, I picked up an episode guide, (laughs) and I'm like nine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I would follow along with the shows with that and, uh, you know, read ahead and see where things were going because I didn't have a concept back then of like, they air these chronologically or are they airing these or did I miss one, you know? Yeah, exactly. I'm a kid, I'm not like, I don't have like a timer. I'm like going back every week at the same time and stuff. I, so it's just like...
1: I don't know. Knowing you as long as I have, it's amazing that you didn't have a timer. <laughs> yeah.
3: So I would just catch it, you know, when I caught it. Um, And I was confused. I was like, I just saw this awesome 89 Batman, dark, and then who, who's this guy and why is it so colorful? Um, And then... Sometime around then a friend of my parents like brought over uh, a comic book for me and my brother. Mm-hmm. The same one, but we each had our own copy of it. Yep. And I think it was Detective Comics six seventy-three is the number. Um it just has like Batman on the cover and the Joker has a like a more jestery costume. Mm-hmm. Um and it's something about like tarot reading and the Joker does a heist at a museum and like kills a bunch of people. The process of it, but
1: like he does, yeah,
3: yeah, um, and something about like that in tarot signs and readings with Batman equate to it. I haven't read in a while, so I don't remember. Oh no,
1: I've got the death card,
3: <laughs> yeah, something like that. Like, you know,
1: <laughs> it does mean good change in my life, though. So, how do I? Oh, it just means that Joker changes costume, <laughs>
3: yeah, something like that. So, uh, those are like the main things of Batman at the time. Uh, but mostly, like, 89 was the big thing mm-hmm. that I was paying attention to. And then things kind of went by the wayside. And then around, like, 93, um, they did the uh, Nightfall arc in Detective Con- like well, I guess all the Batman books did uh, the Nightfall where Bane breaks Batman's back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was at the grocery store, and I spotted a book that had, like, this really cool, like, splatter painting of Batman on it. It's done by Kelly Jones, the cover art. Um, you know, it looks like the background is just on fire mm-hmm. and, um, his batman is like really like just feverishly scr- like scratched on top of it in black. It's like a
1: nightmarish. Like a- yeah. Kind
3: of like a nightmarish looking thing. Um, it was just like a cool piece of graphic art. So I picked that up and then I was like, it's like book eight in the series. So I'd already missed seven parts of this whole, you know, this Bane guy that I've never heard never heard of before. And
1: Oh, don't worry. You'll learn of me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um... <laughs> Yeah, in the comics, you don't know what his voice sounds like. and
1: for, well, now we
3: yeah. do. <laughs> Um, And then we went on, like, um, a cross-country family vacation, and every time we, like, stopped at a convenience store or something, I'd try to pick up the next book in that series.
1: So was it a situation where you couldn't get it? Like, it wasn't, like, available at the places, like, local to you, so whenever you did the road trips, that's when you took advantage of it? Or? Yeah,
3: like, I could only get comics at the grocery store because my parents didn't want to, like, we lived in the mountains, too, so it's not like uh, a hop, yeah, skip, and a jump. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah.
1: absolutely, yeah. The, the places where you lived as a kid, there's, there might be something now, but there probably wasn't back then.
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, also, like, when you're nine, you don't have a lot of clout of, like, I want to go here. It's like, well, you're going to go here if the parents want to go here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But when I became a teenager, we f- I finally found, like, a legit comic book store up in Evergreen, and that's when I started getting back into Turtles and everything. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Because um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is your number one. Yes. Yeah. Um, But so, okay, so you, you, your exposure starts with 89 Batman and then grows out from there. Um, And so, and in regards to Batman the TV show, this seems like this, this was in conjunction with an episode guide that kind of like started to like encouraging your detailed like look into, into, yeah, give you more information like, yeah, who are these, who's the cast, you know. Um, I remember doing that with The Simpsons at one point. Um, whenever they would air it at five and five thirty on KDVR Denver, and that's when I would like, I had an episode guide from like the library and I would flip through and whatever the episode was, I would try to track down the information on it. And thankfully it was usually the ones they were rerunning were from the first 10 seasons. So yeah.
3: Yeah. You learn the titles, you learn the, like what episode you're watching is in what season, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, cause also too, it's not like those shows they planned out. You know, they're very episodic, you know. Oh, yeah, they're they're
1: bottle episodes or two-parter bottle episodes, yeah. Yeah,
3: and then when the season ends, you don't know if it's, like, going to come back, you know. Mm. You could watch an episode and, like, not realize it's the last episode of the entire series, you know. Yeah, exactly. And then they they just restart it again, the reruns, and you're, like
1: that's certainly how star trek unfolded yeah but star trek was always kind of similar to batman 66 star trek was always kind of hanging on a limb in some places that's funny they both had three seasons yeah both had three seasons and both were (laughs) on the verge of cancellations at certain points in their in the middle of their run um which we'll kind of talk about today um but you're i mean also golden age Hollywood-wise or Golden Age show business-wise, you do have a lot of exposure on television's end with things like the Dick Van Dyke Show. For yeah, Nick I watched
3: way more classic television than movies mm-hmm. for sure. Like Nick at Night was huge for me. Yeah, like yeah, Dick Van Dyke Show, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Green Acres.
1: I'm sure I Love Lucy was in the mix at some point.
3: Yeah, I Love Lucy, um, Donna Reed. Donna Reed. What? Yeah.
1: <laughs> this is the first time I'm hearing Donna Reed's name out of your mouth. <laughs> Many loves Adobe Gillis
3: yeah there was a like between 88 and like 91 like they switched to like i think around 90 they switched to more color stuff mm-hmm. and so i i got into nick and i at the end of like a lot of the black and white stuff like they still had the isle of lucy for a long time because it was so popular and dick van dyke mm-hmm. but yeah like around 90 you know um taxi and mork and mindy came on like all these are like green acres like color heavy color shows
1: yeah the dick van dyke is something that actually the real nerds um kind of pushed me back into uh into re because yeah. i don't think i'd watched the entire series um prior yeah, that, to knowing your show but i watched enough because of carl reiner's attachment to it so
3: yeah, um, when the that first dvd set came out like i bought those up and ryan and i lived together at the time so um i was watching him and then he got into it watching me watch him mm-hmm. um and then he got like got his own and like those are beautiful sets too. Yeah. So they are really a lot of fun to collect.
1: Yeah, that's it's a set that I still need to pick up. Um and um the 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 in in regards to Batman sixty six, what's one of the things that's interesting is is that it's had a a reputation that I think has Gone full circle into respectability, but it had a long journey to get there. And I, I want to I, I'll expose my Batman origin story, I guess, right now. Um, so my parents were shot dead in an alley and then Ooh, that's dark. Know, yeah, And then I uh, went over to the mountains and then um, Liam Neeson. Tra- no, no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this kind of gives an insight into Batman 66, what it was when I was growing up. So my first ever exposure would have been the animated series. Cause that was on Fox kids all the time. Um, around that time also was, um, Batman mask of the phantasm. Now I'm like significantly younger than you. So a lot of this is coming to me from there. But, uh, I remember that I wanted to watch one of the live action Batman movies. And my dad thought, that I it's one of two things. He either thought I was wanting to watch this particular movie we're talking about today, or he thought, well, I can show him this one. It's safer than the PG 13 rated Batman, Batman returns and stuff like that. So the first Batman movie that I remember seeing, uh, was this movie, but I didn't pay attention to it. The first one I saw in full was Batman forever because my folks bought the tape for some reason. And I watched that. And then I kind of got into it. And then the first one I saw in the theater was Batman and Robin Um, because I wanted to see Sub-Zero. I assumed Sub-Zero would be in a theater because I thought all movies were in theaters and then go to video because I was... Mr. Freeze? Yeah, the Sub-Zero, Mr. Freeze, Sub-Zero animated film. Oh, the animated movie. The animated film, yeah. So I I thought that was the one we would go see, but we never saw a listing for it. So my dad just said, we'll take you to Batman and Robin. And I... I didn't know the difference at that time of what Batman and Robin was. I just assumed, yeah, it's another Batman adventure. Right on. This is fun. Um and that movie does play well for kids, I do think. Like even even if we roll our eyes at it, like it would play well for a kid at that time.
3: Well, I've told people for years that Forever and especially Batman and Robin um Schumacher's only um template for template content. for Batman is this show. Yeah. Uh so those are fantastic updates. Modernized updates of the show like they strike a very similar tone.
1: Uh, Forever is a little darker,
3: yeah. But I think that because it probably still has Tim Burton's fingerprints on it,
1: yeah. Because he's a, a label as an official producer on it, yeah. And then Batman and Robin is all Schumacher, but it's also all a toy company and all the studio, yeah. <laughs> so it's almost like Schumacher was bullied into saying <laughs> into things to say the least. Um, but the my so I didn't finish this one until uh cut to 2007 2008 like around that time the fever pitch for dark Knight was massive and at this point i was already a tim burton fan so i had already cycled through batman batman and robin and even forever in uh batman and robin uh or B- batman returns sorry batman returns and his batman uh and I refused to watch Batman begins initially because I was like, well, it can't top 89 Batman. And then I finally watched Batman begins on DVD and I was like, Oh, this is really fucking cool. (laughs) So, but anyway, uh, the, the fever pitch for Batman at that point was, was starting to build up. We had already seen that teaser trailer where it's only audio in front of the Simpsons movie. Um, where, uh, it's Michael Caine doing the some men just want to watch the world burn um, bit. And then you hear a Joker laugh. And <clears throat> so I started getting back into Batman. Uh, and at this time, I was also a Kevin Smith fan. So which being a Tim Burton fan and a Kevin Smith fan is like a weird like dueling swords battle. That doesn't make sense. But I'm me. And um, I, I started reading more of the comics, uh, specifically runs like The Dark Knight Returns and Long Halloween, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, I was also consuming as much of the media as I could. So I was going back to all the movies, Batman Begins and 89 Batman specifically. And around that time I started like trying to dip my toe into Batman 66. And one of the things I did was at Comic-Con in 07, I got from a bootleg, uh, uh, stand, uh, Batman 66 in a like thick little set. Of DVDR DVDs where they had been clearly recorded off of uh, either uh, TV land or AMC, whatever the whoever was showing it. And that's my that was my first exposure to the TV show. And then the movie, I actually would rewatch it on DVD and I was getting a kick out of it because I was laughing and I was starting to understand that it wasn't disrespecting Batman the way I had been led to believe through. The, the comparisons between this and Burton. Um, and I started appreciating it more and I kind of got into a sidetracked, uh, like deep dive into the creation of the TV show and the stories around it. Uh, and I think the big thing that kicked my, just, uh, my, my appreciation for this movie is ultimately, it's some really solid comedy writing. <laughs> Uh, and also it's, there's a template here for things in Batman movies we still get today. Um, and then there's obviously the things that have gone by the wayside. Now, uh, since that time, like I think Batman, the TV show had started to become a little bit more reputable. I don't think it fully gets that until the early 2010s, um, thanks to people like Ralph Garman um but also a general appreciation of adam west i think really uh coming to terms with the legacy of batman and like trying to find a way to include everything into the mix except for maybe the 40 serials because those are really hard to justify <laughs> um and uh uh and the i think it, that's when it finally started to become more apparent like hey you shouldn't discard 66 batman just because it's camp- campy like Without it, you probably don't have the Batman you have today um, because you have to make something like this before you start going down the sincerity route. Um, And most certainly one of the big things was, like, its full cemented legacy where it can be appreciated by a mass audience was when it was finally released on Blu-ray because there was a long time where this was not accessible to any of us. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that DC is owned by Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers would have a claim on the character of Batman, but 20th Century Fox is the studio that produced the Batman TV show and the Batman movie we're talking today. So Fox has a claim on it, which means now technically Disney has one Batman movie in their... <laughs> yeah. In there <laughs> They have everything. God damn it. <laughs> DC and Marvel. That's just... That's depressing um but that was that was the reason why we didn't get the show for years we had access to this movie so my first like anybody's first exposure of around our age range would have been just the movie or if they happened to catch it on tv um
3: but i think it was definitely on tv land for a while yeah in the 2000s so yeah people definitely could have just popped on and watched it but owning it in your home and just putting it when you want wasn't a possibility? No,
1: it wasn't. And and what's more, the the idea of this kind of serialized television, where there's two, so the Batman television show consisted of uh, two episode arcs. Um, one ended like at a at a half at the midpoint where Batman's in danger, and the announcer would go same time, t- same tune in tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. So they'd air it two consecutive days, and then you'd get the next batch next week, um, and. The 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 way that this show came about as has to do again with Disney in a roundabout way. So, ABC, the student, the American Broadcasting Company, at the time before it became a Disney magnate, um, was one of the three networks. You had NBC, you had CBS, and you had ABC. Guess which one was the loser? It was ABC. NBC and CBS led the ratings because they already had established radio companies that then carried over their audiences into television. So like with NBC, you had Bob Hope or CBS, you had Jack Benny or you had Lucille Ball, who started doing a radio show for them in the late 40s before she did. I love Lucy and pretty much changed television. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so ABC Good. was in dead last. Yeah, the three.
3: Uh, Desilu produced Star Trek. So they did. Yeah that it, which came out the same year as this. Yep. So not only did on she on NBC cha-
1: and so not only did she change the comedy landscape, she changed sci-fi, you know? And wh- it's because of her that we then get somebody like George Lucas going like, "Well, I could do a space thing," and then he makes Star Wars. And then not only does it kick off a dumb debate between fans, but then it explodes into something that I think is a monster. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter. Just enjoy your shit, guys. <laughs> You've got more of it than I got gangster movies. Leave it alone. <laughs> just like what you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. But yeah, Star Trek Star Trek is a Desilu production. And actually, Lucille Ball was the one who was just like, listen, give it to him. <laughs> I like this show. I don't give a fuck if you don't like it. <laughs> uh, and uh, But so ABC is in dead last. And they're like, well, we've got to kick off our... Uh, we've got to kick our. We got to get some ratings going on in this place. We're ABC, goddammit. it. We had the Wonderful World of Disney for years. We need something. We need something. Enter Bill Dozier, mega producer or <laughs> mega producer, uh, William Dozier, television producer. Um, his his history is really tied to just this show for the most part, um, but he had worked on. CBS programming for You Are There, Ben Hecht's Tales of the City, and Suspense, uh, an adaptation of Suspense on television. Um, And he worked at CBS until he left in 1959 to do production at Screen Gems, which Screen Gems is now a Sony property. Um, He starts Greenway Productions in 1964, and around that time, ABC gives him the batman property which they've acquired through tele through 20th century fox to make this into a show and he looks he grabs a bunch of the comics that were existed at the time and he looks at it and he goes well this is just juvenile uh this isn't cinema oh wait no that was another guy and <laughs> um, batman at this point as a character had already undergone a couple different transformations because he starts off in bob kane's uh initial Run in nineteen thirty eight as a pretty sincere dark character for the most part yeah
3: detective comics twenty seven yep. um those books you know it's, they're not even just only batman books they're uh, noir detective stories um mm-hmm. yeah you know they're almost like batman's just like a comic strip in it really yeah it, it pulp uh, pulpy pulp, is, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah pulpy like not i mean the two can the two can commingle it's fine yeah and then um, by
3: the 50s um you know they they were starting to write batman into more like sci-fi plots because you know people are more into sci-fi yeah they just like they did with crystal skull
2: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> knowledge the treasure was knowledge <laughs> <laughs> i've learned to like that movie more but some things still it, i appreciate it, it, what they're going for because like yeah india that
3: age Like in the 50s, like that's what that's the kind of material that's popular in that era. But like after, I think, what 20 years of not being able to see Indiana Jones on screen, you want to see
1: him fight Nazis again. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which we all know that Spielberg stopped really doing that after Schindler's List, with which for reasons that I absolutely respect, but it's still fun to watch and not to get punched. Um, It's funny that Batman actually, his creation initially stems out of, not just his creation, but creations of characters around him stem off of radio and cinema uh, before it. because Most of the shadow, right? The shadow, yeah. (laughs) Why can't they make a good movie out of me? (laughs) Oh, someday they'll make a shadow movie that's worth me sitting down there and going like, this is better than Batman. <laughs> um, but no, yes, the shadow is among those pulp stories. And, the, and I think mainly Bob Kane's not only looking at the radio show, but, but also the pulp store, the, the shadow magazine, which was a pulp monthly pulp magazine that had shadow stories that a lot of them ended up getting transposed into the radio show. Um, But the other inspirations within uh, the Batman circle, we have the Joker, who's in this movie today, um, and uh, the inspiration for his look that Bill Finger ended up applying to it. Well, Jerry Robinson. Jerry Robinson, sorry. Not Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson. The one that Jerry Robinson ends up providing inspiration for is from Conrad Veidt and the Man Who Laughs. This is a 1928 silent film where a man is disfigured as punishment for his father's fuck-ups um and he this and of course the man who laughs falls in love with a blind woman uh like you do and that look and that imagery has become the inspiration for a character that i would argue has been the only real batman character apart from batman to really transcend pop culture uh beyond just the comics and the movies like joker's a Phenomenon in Mm -hmm. its own right Um, And there's also Elements of Mask of, of, of Zorro Batman Has cinematic influence Strewn about it Then creates this phenomenon with Batman Which I'm not sure of batman's popularity compared to superman throughout the third the the throughout the 40s i don't know what the ratio is necessarily because we also have wonder woman in the mix and you have scattered marvel properties before marvel really became marvel
3: yeah it's my understanding is like the reason they put batman in those goofy 50s sci-fi plots in the comics were because he was losing popularity yeah um
1: so then what you're saying is is that they they had to adjust to their they had to adjust to the times, not yeah. unlike anything,
3: yeah, um, and then around the seventies, um they kind of threw up their hands and like, let's go back to his roots, yeah, and so they went back to the dark dark detective stuff, and
1: yeah, which that that came out of the fallout from this show initially, so Dozier's not wrong to do what he's doing though because at this point, Batman's already been pushed into his outer limits, if you will, in terms of believability, or I guess, and again, the the term believability is kind of relative when you're talking about superheroes in general. So like, you know, I don't, I, I'm not, i i am i am a firm believer in not really caring about nerd logic these days, because I think it tends to hamper my enjoyment of a piece by thinking about it too much sometimes. Um, but in the case of Batman, there are things in his history where he has gone way outside his zone, and we'll talk about some of those at the end of this. But
3: he actually started like he was totally fine with killing people and using guns. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when people complain that you know Batman doesn't use guns, I'm like, yeah, his gun turrets on the Batmobile.
1: I'm like technically he did. Yeah. I, I'm. I one of I, the
3: funniest I, things I ever read. I forget what comic book it was, but he was flying in his in the Batplane, and there was some kind of like mutant giant that like clung onto it Mm -hmm. and then he just like goes higher and higher into the sky to the point where the the giant just drops off and he flies away and the you know the giant falls to his death and batman's like there's nothing i could have (laughs) done it's sad but you know tough look he should should, yeah so i guess that's life that's life i mean he could have landed the plane that's what all the people (laughs) (laughs) instead of ascending but you know but yeah he was fine with totally like letting it weird giant look brad who's writing this comic lab. you
1: or bob <laughs> <laughs>
3: mostly bill probably yeah oh
1: that's right bill our our <laughs> our shadow artist the dark the dark artist <laughs> but yeah like yeah nerds get hung up on it. um but yeah no um so the by this time dozier's proposal is not unwarranted um and at this point it becomes behooven on them to figure out who's going to play Batman and who's going to play Robin. Uh, they end up finding their Batman uh, in the form of Adam West, who prior to this, he did a lot of television early on uh, for ABC actually with Sugarfoot, Colt, Sugarfoot, Colt 45 and Lawman um, where uh, in Lawman, he played the role of Doc Holliday. Uh, and then he, also appears as two different characters in two different episodes of Maverick with James Gardner. Uh, He begins getting uh, a little bit more recognition for an episode of The Rifleman. Uh, And then he starts appearing in a show called The Detectives uh, with Robert Taylor, um, who will be talked about on this show because he's in a Jack Benny movie. And funnily enough, there's Jack Benny connections with what we're talking about today. So, uh, because if I can can find it, I fucking will. Um, And, uh, but the thing that starts tapping him into the comedy realm beyond even this three stooges thing were these Nestle quick commercials, which uh, Brad had pointed to me that there was a, uh, uh, that these were, this was Nestle quick. It's just the Nestle's small in the commercial, but in it he's playing kind of like a secret agent type of character, like spoofing a James Bond at this time. They're spoofing James Bond for these commercials. If you watch the commercials, it's the same thing he brings to Batman. This is like a calm under pressure or even like this Bruce Wayne delivery, to be honest, where it's just very calm, very, very dry, very witty. Um, And Dozier and the producer see this and they get Adam West to play Batman. Now, originally Lyle Wagner was also tested because the studio was uncertain of his ability to play Batman, but they did uh, two tests, one with, adam west and burt ward and the other one with Lyle wagner and um peter Re- and peter diell was played uh played robin so the network looks at this and they go with adam and burt burt ward had done nothing prior to being robin <laughs> but he had a martial arts background he had a martial arts background but he was also a an aspiring actor who was selling real estate on the weekends uh to supplement income and he gets the role uh producers actually think he's a little too big and he's just like, "Well, don't worry. I promise not to grow anymore." And they were like, "I like that. Let's let's get <laughs> you in this fucking costume and have you running around with another man in tights." <laughs> uh and that's that's initially where the Batman series begins. They bring in Lorenzo Semple Jr. uh to write the pilot and really become the head writer of the show. I think Lorenzo Semple is like the the god of Batman 66. Like he's the He's the key figure in, in most of it, apart from Dozier.
3: Yeah. Um, so I watched the movie on the Blu-ray, and I found out today that the movie was actually
1: supposed to be the pilot. Yep. was supposed to be the pilot. was supposed to be a way to kick people off and introduce people to Batman. Um, I couldn't get a confirmation on if they were trying to do like a split up on the episodes or if it was just going to be the feature film in theaters. Regardless, though, ABC said they couldn't justify the cost for that because they wanted to basically premiere the film as they were in production on season one to build up anticipation
3: yeah the movie was supposed to like get people excited about the show Mm -hmm. but because of the ratings that they were like in a crunch time on the on the network they said like okay let's move the show up and debut it anyway um and then
1: yeah yeah which at the time abc is kind of like hemorrhaging money to get this done But they had nothing else in their line. Actually, the first testing, the first test screenings for the Batman pilot were disastrous for them. But they had no other, they already paid for the show. They had no real other options. So they just went all in on Batman and really a lot of Batman '66's success can also be attributed to like really aggressive marketing, like, I, like huge marketing. Uh, this, th- this goes even beyond just tying it into the comic books of the time, which are an element of Batman at this time too. Cause every, the, the two start to run in tandem for three years and, uh, the show is rather popular. It becomes an instant pop culture phenomenon. Batmania had taken over in 1966 and at this time, uh, they were able to basically justify making this film during the summer hiatus before season two began.
3: I what I have to say. The show was also a huge incentive for selling color televisions.
1: Yes. Yes, it was because these shows are in color. Yeah.
3: And it was designed to be so colorful and bright, vibrant. Mm-hmm. Like that whole production design was, you know, chosen. To get people excited about buying color TVs,
1: yeah. Which and and you when you watch the TV show now, if you've got the Blu-ray, it says Batman in color. Like that's it's 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 a push. Yeah, it's it's amazing to and actually those Blu-rays and even the movie we're watching today. I watched it on Prime in HD, and it still looked pretty fucking vibrant. I don't think as vibrant as the TV show, um, but I don't know if there's reason for that or not. That's one thing I couldn't look into. Is like, did they just not like? pull the same out from the movie because the movie is colorful, but it's not, I think it's not as poppy as the show at times because they're on more real locations than sets. So yeah, not that many locations, but yeah,
3: probably also it might've been a budget thing because obviously now that they're making the movie between season one and season two, season one, they threw the money at because they still the op- did the optical like Bam Pow titles. Yeah. Seasons two and three, it's just a slide. Yeah. <laughs> on screen, That covers the screen. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, it used to be transparent, but yeah, they might've just, I mean, it's next, the movie's next to the ocean most of the time. So it's
1: like, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's they not Aquaman. W- they, <laughs> I, you know what? You could have fooled me when I was rewatching it. Cause I hadn't seen this in a couple of years and I was just like, I want, momoa popping out of the water now (laughs) Uh, because that's my only aquaman reference
3: (laughs) when they uh when the when the dolphin sacrifices itself and blows itself off that that would have been a great time for
1: aquaman to show up and be like
3: you killed my dolphin
1: man oh oh, no he he cradles the dead dolphin in his arms (laughs) and goes not cool bro you will be avenged (laughs) That's when Aquaman has a special appearance on Batman sixty. Who would play Aquaman in nineteen sixty six? That's that's my question. Oh, gosh, that's I, tough.
3: <laughs> yeah, definitely not.
1: Uh, not Shatner. You can't do. You know, that. Shatner was supposed to be Two Face. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, definitely uh, like a
3: white-haired European dude yeah
1: because well yeah because they keep in mind aquaman at this point we don't i don't think we had had now aquaman
3: her. at this time is a very clean cut yeah average looking dude yeah
1: so god who's a blonde actor of this era
3: probably someone who was in an episode i forget like like there's a couple episodes that aren't based on dc comics characters like they was made up for the show and i think like
1: or you mean like egghead
3: not egghead <laughs> well yeah like yeah, again it was made up for the show, but like <laughs> there's some generic ones like, you know, the Shane or yeah. the minstrel uh Yeah. <laughs> there's like a Robin Hood guy. Too. Oh. Maybe it's the same guy, but I feel like there was some guy who looks like that version of Aquaman like as one of those guest roles. Yeah, that could
1: have that could have sub- uh that, that could have supplemented that and whatnot. Yeah. Actually, maybe Jeffrey Hunter. Yeah who played Pike on the Star Trek pilot and was also discussed on the searchers episode where now we could talk about positive things for Jeffrey Hunter now because (laughs) we're past the searchers. Um, But yeah, I actually, I would, I would throw my money in for Jeffrey Hunter, and if you need to brighten his hair up a little bit, you can do that. But yeah, he dye his hair It's fine. Yeah, that'd be good, or even Van uh, Van Johnson from yeah, the I, Green Hornet. Yeah,
3: I thought it was like making that name up, but you're right. Yeah, that's his name.
1: Yeah, Van Johnson played the Green Hornet, who appeared on a crossover with Batman in the in that sixty run because the Bat uh, uh, Green Hornet comes afterward. Um, and I wish they would get the Green Hornet television show out because that would be nice. Um, but at any rate, they the one thing is for certain, though, the budget that they were they were able to get a pretty decent budget for this film. And a lot of it went into making new gadgets <laughs> and yeah, the
3: copter in the boat.
1: Yep. the Copter <laughs> in the boat, which now there is a back copter in the Batman comics, which I don't think I've ever seen in any of the comics I've read. <laughs> So I'm assuming this is an early on effort, or even something that was pretty much of the time that they were making the show.
3: I mean, there's lots of gadgets in the comics, like yeah, like there's also another. It's like a trash can with a copter blade on top <laughs> that they like each had their own of. Yeah,
1: so like there was like a Robin copter and a Bat copter.
3: Yeah. yeah, it was just like this gray wheelchair thing with a copter on it that I remember from a cover of something.
1: That sounds like it's curbing my my mood. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, but, yeah, no, and then we also have the Bat Boat, which there are Bat Boats. I know I've seen Bat Boats, especially in, well, Batman Forever plays very heavily into Bat Boats by the third act. So
3: Yeah, uh, the ski boat and Returns.
1: Yeah, th- yeah, the ski boat and Returns. Um, And Nolan never did the Bat Boat, did he? I can't remember. No. I don't no. think so.
3: No. He just had the Bat and it just flew over the ocean.
1: Yeah, he had the Tumbler. He had the the bat pod, the pod, yeah, which is really the bat cycle, whatever. And yeah, the um, bat, yeah. And then also the the bat jet. Um, and then that's when he got the bomb and went, "I'm gonna throw it over the bay." <laughs> <laughs> that's when you bring the boat in. be <laughs> hilarious if
3: uh, <laughs> Christian Bale like is looking out, you know, uh, remembering his life. He's just like some some days you just can't get rid of a bomb, and then <laughs> flash the <of> light.
1: <laughs> oh, oh. It's been a long time since I've watched that movie.
3: And then Alfred sees him at a cafe.
1: But now, if I ever watch that movie again, it's going to be, I'm just going to be thinking that line now. <laughs> that some days you just can't get or rid Jordan of a
3: bomb. Or Joseph Gordon-Levitt's watching him from the bridge fly over. <laughs> and he's just like, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb.
1: <laughs> then he sees the Holy guts, Ben. Man. <laughs> Holy guts. <laughs> I like your new name. What? Robin. Or I like your real name. Robin <laughs> holy nuclear fallout <laughs> we'll we'll get into the plot here because he has some great holy moments like what my favorite one is one where I'm just like this is just now this is just being shoved in so far um but so the movie as a plot it's it's kind of like a template setter for Batman movies to come after Burton's Batman first Batman because there's one thing that you cannot shy away from is like we have a constant complaint about shoving in too many villains in our superhero movies batman 1966 put four of these suckers in there and found a way to make each of them have their own standout moments (laughs) in a way that we can't even get away with with two (laughs) today um and i don't know if a lot of that has to do with the fact that these versions of the villains are not comic book loyal per se <laughs> like their interpretations of them at the time but they don't have the same mythos that we have attached to them now
3: well, i think it's that they're so contrived like they're written into this plot like it's designed for this plot to exist yes so it's exactly. like you know they're not beholden to you know you know well catwoman has to have this personality and like she wouldn't say that or like it's kind of like anything goes. Yeah, you, know? you
1: didn't ha- like Bob Kane would probably be the last person they would be inviting on the set and also the last person who would be sticking to the mythos cuz I don't think he understood that the mythos existed for Batman yet at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a lot of these people when they created these comics, they did not anticipate the longevity of them. They literally wrote these as as products to be consumed by children and then promptly tossed in the garbage after reading because well it's done wait yeah. for the next issue
3: in the episodes you know if you manage to get to syndication like that's the only time people would ever see it again
1: yeah exactly so so there's there's a there there's there's no inherent need for a mythology like there's no onset there's no Michael Uslan uh, coming on board this film like or equivalent even. The only thing that really would be kept consistent is the portrayals of the characters as they existed on the show, because you did have Frank Gorshin, Burgess Meredith, and Cesar Romero already coming from the TV show. Now, all, I want to clarify for Ballyhoo audiences: we would be here all day talking about the legacy of each of these actors, uh, and we kind of want to. I, I kind of want to stick to Batman here for a second, but there are elements of them that will pop up down the line. Burgess Meredith for one had history with golden age Hollywood with amongst other people, Lubitsch. Um, Cesar Romero was a Latin lover star, uh, very famous for his mustache. And that mustache can still be seen in Batman. 1966, 1967, 1968, because he refused to shave that fucking thing. Yeah, and I remember it,
3: being a kid and be like,
1: why is he, why are they paint over his mustache? And you know what, Brad, <laughs> I agree with (laughs) (laughs) Cesar. Why would you ask him to do that? (laughs) When you as a business, when you as a show business has set up the fact that if you change your look even once, the audience will hate you, you've already instilled paranoia into Cesar Romero. So of course he's going to say, I'm not shaving a goddamn thing.
3: (laughs) But at the same time, like how long does it take to, like it's not the, the one he's covering up isn't very thick. Like no, it's, it's, it's like a, three days of growth.
1: Yeah, it's but it's rough, but it's enough for him to still be remembered as Cesar Romero.
3: I mean, like you maybe hide away for two weekends, you know? Yeah, throw it back. Like I, I, I,
1: he probably kept it. He probably kept that thing trimmed, like a fucking, like a like a meticulous artist.
3: <laughs> yeah, but I'm just like you. You're you're only doing like what three months of shooting this, this show. Like you can't just suck it up for
1: now did you watch did you watch this on an h g t v when we were when you rewatched it for the for the show yeah blu ray okay. so okay I watched it through the stream on prime and it looks a little thicker than you like than than most because like it's still like there's still something to it but the white paint is right. covering all the layering that could be there But so, it's not a celic <laughs> no no it's not a celic yeah but I would i I remember when I watched it in like D V D prints and even like on a Zoom because I had a Zoom guys, I was a fucking poor kid. Um the uh the quality of it was such as like you could notice it but it wasn't distracting. In H D it's fucking distracting.
3: <laughs> I mean I saw it on when I was watching the family channel and yep. that was like I don't know twenty inch yeah. CRT?
1: Yeah, you can definitely notice it. For me, it just didn't bother me as much until last night when I'm like, uh, this is, yeah, this is, this is bad. <laughs> is, whenever he's in a wide shot, it's fine. Medium shot, okay. Close up, like when he's with Commodore Schmidt lap serving him this tea, I'm like, oh, that, that's, that's, if they make a 4K version, you don't see the white paint anymore. You just see Cesar <laughs> Romero's face.
3: And <laughs> you get the uh, guys who did uh, Henry Cavill's.
1: That's, mustache erasure. That is. On there. That is an excellent point. If people are bothered by this, which first of all, if you tra- change a goddamn frame of these shows, I'm fucking coming after you because that's that's revisionism on a Lucas level. But if we wanted that, we've already proven we can remove Cavill's mustache. <laughs> Do we dare try to remove Cesar Romero's mustache? <laughs> I, I mean, think there's a lot
3: more flexibility with the Joker because you can just like distort that smile.
1: Yeah, e- exactly. You could kind of twist that a little yeah. bit. And also it's a little bit easier to remove it because there's already something covering it. So like r- literally you're kind of just filling in frame by frame uh, the uh, uh, the little specks where you can clearly see things sticking out. So it's not like the removal for Cavill completely where he had it. <laughs> the <It's an> entire <laughs> y- jaw yeah, replaced. Ex- exactly. Yeah. We have the version that everyone wanted now, so we can stop worrying about it, guys. It, it got rectified, but at what cost? Um, I mean, the cost was four hours of my time, and I had fun with it—better um, than I thought it would be. Thirty million dollars. Yeah, thirty <laughs> million. Yeah, thirty million dollars, which tacked onto the so, that's, so that does that technically make Justice League a two hundred thirty million dollar production? In the end? Yeah, in the end.
3: In probably the long, way more than that.
1: Well, okay, but like more like five to six hundred million because of marketing too. It but.
3: was it was probably already two hundred million and then you had Josh Sweden come in there and probably add like another sixty to a hundred million onto it. because yeah. he reshot all that stuff and then yeah, he got okay. Zack Snyder back to do like thirty to forty. So
1: Okay, yeah, we're 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 and jump- then
3: print and marketing.
1: Yeah. So yeah, probably six hundred million dollars to make two different Justice League movies. Closer to a
3: billion, really. God but they got a ton of subscribers on HBO Max, so they're they're
1: doing fine. Yeah, they're happy. They're happy, and we're getting uh, Matrix Four or something like that. So we'll get some more franchises to deal with, uh, and Godzilla vs Kong, which is fun. Uh, but um, anyway, though, uh, and then Frank Gorshin, though, we will have time to talk about him else on the show. But I I want to give a brief one on him because he's mainly known as a character actor and an impressionist. He started off on uh, a Western series called Frontier Doctor. Um, He would appear 12 different times on the Ed Sullivan show. um, First time in 1962 on June 17th. On the same night as the Beatles premiered on Ed Sullivan, he was also on the show. That 64 show where the roof blew off and we got Beatlemania. Before our Batmania, there was Beatlemania. Um, And then he would work different nightclubs doing his impressionist act, mostly in Vegas. But as far as Gorshin's film career, he starts off really in these B movies. So he's in Hot Rod Girl and Drag Strip Girl, um, which both wonderful titles for a Quentin Tarantino movie that we'll probably never get. Um, And he's in the movie Skidoo in 1968, which is notorious in the world of Marx Brothers fans because Groucho Marx is in it playing the role of quote-unquote God. Um, And... His and around the time that he's the Riddler, like two years after, he ends up being on Star Trek, um, in a very, very famous episode of Star Trek, playing the half man, ha- half black, half white man. Um, and my, Frank Gorshin, my first exposure wasn't this to him, technically, or well, I guess it was because of this movie, but my first like knowing who he was. My dad took me to the Buell Theater when I was younger when he did a one-man show playing George Burns. Um, And I kicked and screamed to go to it, and we went. And so there's Frank Gorshin doing his Burns imitation, and from what I remember, Gorshin's Burns was fucking on point. Like, it was dead beautiful, like, perfect. Um, And he loved playing the Riddler. In later interviews, he said that he did love, like, the comic intonation of it, and he enjoyed the challenge of it. So, um, but Gorshin
3: Jim Carrey's, uh, Riddler isn't that far off from Gorshin's performance.
1: No, it isn't. And I know that I'm, some people say that Carey's trying to do the Riddler version of Jack Nicholson, but I'm like, no, the Gorshin's there. Of course it's very there. So, you know, like, it's not like these, that's the thing. Like, even though the Burton Batman stuff and Burton Schumacher Batman stuff is trying to deviate, where it can from the TV show to make it more hip. The actors that the main actors who are in Batman, a lot of them, that's their reference for Batman. Like the, th- the thing with that pop culture element at that time was that prior to Nolan, anybody who was going to be in a Batman movie, their first reference is going to be like, well, when I was a kid, it was Adam West and Burt Ward, Frank Gorshin and Burgess Meredith running around.
3: Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, w- I would have thought, uh, Tommy Lee Jones' Two Face was closer to Nicholson's character. Oh oh yeah, maybe yeah. that's
1: what I'm thinking. Yeah. But like if if people want to compare like the Burton Schumacher films as like a step up from the TV show, and I'm like, not so much. One, obviously from Schumacher's point of view, but even Burton's Batman has elements of the campiness and whatnot. The interactions between Penguin and Catwoman in this movie echo Batman Returns eerily, particularly with the scene when uh, Catwoman visits Penguin's mayoral campaign offices and eats the bird in Batman Returns. I like the the way she's positioned on the table and the way Penguin's talking to her in this movie echo that <laughs> eerily. So, so I'm just like, Burton didn't, in a, like, Burton stole, <laughs> mm-hmm. he just reframed it. <laughs> um, but, the plot. Well, let's jump into the plot of the film because we've got like we we don't have too much to cover, but there are. Yeah, it's not a deep film. No, it's, oh no 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 no, <laughs> no 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 no. we're not going to be talking about like it also, one hundred percent problem free, <laughs> no racism, very little to no like registrable sexism. <laughs> uh, apart from the Katanya persona, K- Kitka. Kitka character that Catwoman is playing. Uh, opposite Bruce Wayne, which by the way, Lee Merriweather who plays Catwoman in this film, she was brought in because Julie Newmar didn't realize that they were making a Batman movie. So she signed on to do a hot rod racing movie in the UK. <laughs> hmm. um, so that's why we got Lee Merriweather as Catwoman in this film.
3: There are a lot of uh, Batman villains that got replaced. Like eventually Frank Gorshin uh, was replaced with John Astin and, um, uh, Mr. Freeze had like three different actors portray him throughout the run and, and actually, three Catwomans.
1: And actually Gorshin this would be his last appearance for a little while because he wasn't in season two and then he came back for season three at some point. So they interchanged out plenty of times. They get, correct me if I'm wrong is the only one that never really got replaced is Egghead because you can't improve on perfection. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well it's easy but yeah, when you make up a New character for the show.
1: It's just, easy when you're for, Vincent Price. Yeah. <laughs> you don't understand. My character was excellent. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Um, I. I the beginning of this film is fucking awesome because it starts off, first of all, with like an introduction, like dedicated to the police of America, the believers of true escapism. And then it shows a couple making out next to a brick wall. (laughs) Then it goes like, and for any other group we forgot. Anyway, enjoy this fucking movie. (laughs) So already we know like, okay, this is a joke. This is a joke. And I love Nelson Riddle, um, does the score for the film. And he didn't do the theme though. The theme was done by Neil Hefty. Riddle's score does a version at the top that i fucking love where it like expands like it starts with the dun 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 dun, and then you start doing this like i don't know like it, it feels like a jazz infused like fucking epic score where like it, it it's different than the show obviously but it just feels like it's it's ramping you into high gear for a fun time so. we're just talking
3: about the intro part yeah just the intro part like that I was music. so frustrated with the rest of the movie where there was like the same four or five notes played over and over again
1: yeah no <laughs> but but that opening like yeah. that opening that opening cue that riddle has for it i fucking love it i still think i think it tops anything that i hear in the tv show itself even the theme song because it's like a variation on it that just really kills and you get spotlight performances on uh, spotlights on all the characters with their different filters. So like Joker's got purple Riddler's got green Penguin's got purple blue. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know Catwoman's got purple. Definitely. I think
3: most of them had purple. Cause I remember being like, obviously Joker has purple, but then I was like, Oh yeah, I guess penguin had purple too.
1: Yeah. Gorshin has to have green because yeah. that costume is, is is iconic but also and by the way gorshin by the way whenever he could take off his fucking eye mask he's gonna take it off because <laughs> he wants to be seen he does not want to be wearing wearing a mask
3: it's funny you could tell like how they shot how they did like the the shoot list because there was like one scene where he was in his jacket version of the riddler costume yeah and then they had like a scene where they left the uh hideout and he was in the spandex. <laughs> and then the next scene was back at the hideout. So he was like back in the the jacket again. Yeah. Which means they just shot both those scenes <laughs> at the same time. Yeah.
1: So yeah, you could just tell that like they're just cramming everything in. They had like a tighter schedule because they did want to get this out while yeah, things I think were the like still- commentary,
3: Adam West said it was like six weeks. Yeah, which yeah. is pretty
1: quick even for like even for a 66 Batman movie because yeah. like, you think about trying to shoot a Batman movie in six weeks now, then you'd be you'd be tossed off the lot. <laughs> yeah, I
3: mean, because of the show, they obviously had a lot of the props and locations ready to go. So. Yeah, so
1: everything's already there, and they're also not dealing with the CGI world where you have to render a bunch of effects for for hours. There's only one or two real optical illusions in this fi- in in this film, like optic effects. Um, most of them have to do with the dehydrator. <laughs> yeah, um,
3: the titles. And yeah, yeah,
1: the titles. Yeah. Um, and the, the beginning of this plot, we get our narrator, our trusty narrator from the television show, still giving us, you know, the spiel on Batman, like he's Batman, he protects the city. <laughs> um, cause I can't do his voice. I'm not going to try. Um, and we are alerted to a situation out on the high seas with a boat <laughs> and Batman and Robin chase out, like are speeding off in their batcopter. copter.
3: Yeah. The boat like possesses some important technology.
1: Yes. Um, it's a, well, we find out it's the dehydrator, which has been invented by Commodore Schmidlap. Um, but they go to that guy invented it. Yeah. That's, that's what I got from it. Cause he's the one they're holding hostage on the boat.
3: I thought they are just holding him hostage cause they were stealing his boat. But he's okay.
1: Part of the distillery. He must be the inventor of it.
3: I was so confused with like his relevance to the plot.
1: He's, he's there to provide a comic moment for the Joker And then also to provide a cover for the penguin when he invades the Batcave. (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah, so they're just like, we've established that Schmidlap exists, so (laughs) we don't have to worry about Penguin disguising himself for this overstretched gag. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because I love the movie. I only had one problem with the movie on a logic level, and it had to do with that moment. But they go to the high seas, they go to the boat. Batman's being lowered to the boat, boat disappears. What the fuck, Brad? Why'd this boat disappear? How's that happen? How how in the world does a huge ass boat disappear? Unless it was never really there. It was never really (laughs) there. Precisely, Robin. Uh, (laughs) um, But before we even find out that that's the reason, we get an iconic scene in Batman history, period.
3: Which I forgot was that early on, but yeah.
1: Yeah. So we get Batman punching the shit out of a shark. You see this Fake fake shark. Robin
3: accidentally lowers the copter too low. Yeah, He gets his leg stuck in the water. And (laughs) conveniently, there's a shark in the same spot.
1: (laughs) And the shark, you can tell that Adam's moving his leg (laughs) to make it shake. And I love that he's giving him lower up jabs. (laughs) I just
3: kept thinking of Dobie from Anchorman (laughs) 2.
1: Yes.
3: (laughs) That whole time. yeah
1: i'm i'm thinking of like every like it's like it's weird because now we have live in the world of the internet and memes existing like not where we can like create like our own dream versions of something batman might do i think this is like the origin point for it of like batman punches a shark (laughs) like already this movie this film with the T V show in conjunction doesn't jump the shark, it punches the shark. <laughs> um and he goes, hand me down the shark repellent bat spray. Actually
3: first he says lower the um bat stairs. Lower
1: the bat stairs.
3: And there's a flag that says bat stairs or whatever. Yeah.
1: That's oh that's so he can get lowered down.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I just thought it was like so weird that he labeled it.
1: Yeah. Oh well that's not the only <laughs> thing he labels. <laughs>
3: Like there's a flag hanging off that says like what the rope stairs are hanging off the <laughs> copper after like anyone needs to know that or understand that.
1: It's it's part of the camp humor, I guess, because like I, it's been a while since I've gone through the entire television show. But well, he you- doesn't
3: have a flag on his cowl that says like bat cowl or he doesn't have like a... Bat belt label. It's well. In there's co- not. There's not even a thing that says Bat Copter. It's a,
1: even. Even Dozier must have known. Like, there's such a thing as overdoing it. Plus, the Bat Copter has Batman symbology around it. I guess technically, Adams just. Uh, but it's no, not written out. No, but and bro- I can just
3: imagine like Robin or Alfred sitting in the cave, like printing <laughs> out or like embroidering the flag, and then having to like sew it onto the stairs.
1: <laughs> and then, trust, trust me, Alfred. People will thank me someday for being able to. how's my label coming yeah (laughs) do you think it's a little too obvious i know sir i think it's fine oh good because i'm gonna label every fucking thing in this cave (laughs) because that's in the cave everything's got a label in the cave it makes
3: sense because there's a lot of stuff around like you know it's a lot of looks the same he has to tell robin and alfred where to go yeah he
1: can't i guess bruce 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 at this point knows where all the tech is yeah and we're and we're living in a world where maybe Dick Grayson has already like has started to join the fold, you know, and that's when he has to bring in the the Aunt, uh the Aunt Harriet character and whatnot, which Aunt Harriet by the way is played by Madge. surprisingly Mad. absent from this movie. She's very absent from this film. Madge Blake is very prevalent in the TV show because the cover <laughs> everybody in the house but Aunt Harriet knows who each other is. <laughs> Aunt Harriet is it sucks that the woman is left clueless in this whole affair because I'm almost just like let Harriet know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> it's it can't be because she's worried that Dick will die. Like, I don't I don't fully understand, but she has a she has a character history, not the least of which on an episode of the Jack Benny program, she plays among the presidents of the Jack Benny fan club before there was an actual Jack Benny fan club. So there's connection there. But on the show, she's she's relative, she's very nice and sincere. And a lot of the Batman TV show ends up playing into camping up but never talking down to respect for authority and like good good civic duty and whatnot. Kinda of like what the Superman show did in the fifties with George Reeve. Where it's like, you know, be a good citizen, do your chores, do your homework, blah 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 blah. It just camps it up for the adults, but the children still take it as literal. Um, well, you know why she's really there, right? <laughs> make sure there's no hanky panky between two men in tights, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, the network couldn't handle like yep. two single men living together. They're just really they're not, three because of Alfred. But... Hold on,
1: hold on, Dozier. You're going to tell me that it's just an elderly British man, a young 20, a young sixteen-year-old played by a twenty-year-old, and this billionaire. No, 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 no! You got to get a fucking woman in there. <laughs> yeah, this is not gonna fucking. Do you, you think it was difficult when we had Hitchcock over here trying to insert innuendo into his movies? Imagine what's gonna happen if we just show it on its face. <laughs> also, whose aunt is she? I think she's well, it's Dick Grayson's.
3: I assume that, but I, I don't remember anyone saying specifically that she is I his th- aunt. Like
1: it would be in the pilot. I'm assuming I, I'd have to go back to the pilot.
3: I mean, the you know they don't even talk about. The death of Batman's parents in the show, so it's like,
1: the, the, I remember in the pilot, them she, going like, my my uh, my parents fell to crime, and that's like it's briefly covered, and then he's just like, but but if I can help the citizens of Gotham
3: City, yeah, I, I think Bruce even calls her Aunt Harriet sometimes, so that that makes me think that maybe she could also be his aunt.
1: Does that mean Batman and Robin are related, no, <laughs> in I just this mean, version or?
3: Like I'm, it, it could just mean that she's not Dick's aunt.
1: Well, it could, and it could also, it could be that, or it's like when you have a family friend that's an uncle or an aunt. Maybe not your aunt, but you're just like, oh, I Harriet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we get the shark repellent bat spray, and they have more than one bat spray for Manta oceanic bat spray, y-
3: uh, real there- bat spray, and I think dolphin bat spray. Although no, it can't be dolphin.
1: Yeah, we're gonna repel those dolphins, but if they try to sacrifice themselves for us later on down the line, then we'll honor them with no memorial whatsoever other than a mention. <laughs> yeah, I
3: definitely know there's whale. and I just said the other one forgot it already.
1: Uh we'll have to we'll have to get a screenshot for people and we'll post it on the Twitter feed. Um and we we that's when we get Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara and
3: um, Don't forget, uh, Batman and Robin have gone to his office, and despite having a shark attached to his shins for like a good five-minute sequence, he is totally OK.: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's, he is not hurting.:
1: He fixed himself up in the back copter at some point. Like he, he, he's nope,
3: he, no he, bandages.:
1: He's a billionaire. He can he probably has tech even in the '60s that we're not aware of, Brad has like a healing pill of some kind for Stop legs. Stop making excuses, Zach. It doesn't make sense. The, no, the show makes excuses <laughs> to have solutions that are super convenient for any moment that they have. Like the bat sp- a shark repellent bat spray. Why is that specifically in the copter and not in the boat? <laughs> I,
3: no one. They could both be there. We just didn't see them in the boat. You know, he could have okay. duplicates. Okay, that's fair. Yeah.
1: But like how often is he needing to do things oceanic related in the copter? <laughs>
3: I mean, it's a copter. You could fly over the ocean pretty easily.
1: I mean, the only thing I need to know is, does he have a crane that he is allowed to let go of, like, huge atomic bombs into the ocean, like we were discussing earlier? Like, I didn't see a crane, really. I saw the Bat Ladder and the Bat Steps, but I don't think I saw a crane. Bat Ladder. The I bat ladder. saying stairs, yeah. No, like, yeah, but ladder, stairs, same difference. No, he
3: runs around with the bomb. Why does he need it on the copter?
1: yeah. I can get it over the bay. <laughs> <laughs> that line will never come to me. Uh, not come to me. He also. They also hold a press conference to be like, what's the deal with this boat disappearing? And he's like, well, that's ridiculous. How can something disappear if it's not there? <laughs> and that's when we get the... the actually, I kind of like how Batman and Bruce both cover up themselves for like hiding information from the public or hiding the, his own identity. It's not. It's obviously not great because it's meant for comic humor and whatnot. But I'm just like, I buy that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that's a good PR response. Like, how, is it that's impossible. How could there be a boat there if it disappeared? Like that. that it, it, therefore, not there. Um, and that's when we also get the first appearance of Lee Merryweather as Catwoman, who's also Katanya Kitka. Kitka. Well, Kit, Kitka, but like her full name is Katanya something something i missed that yeah like she 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 gives a full huge name she actually tries to say like like will you please take off your mask so we can have a uh, picture for the moscow bugle and causes she,
3: quite a stir in yeah the room.
1: She, what batman take off his mask how dare you man you will ruin everything <laughs> they establish, you can't take off the mask how dare you take off this mask and batman's going like gentlemen gentlemen she's a stranger
3: in our country she doesn't understand our customs yeah
1: exactly if i were to remove my mask it would put my family and uh, those i live with in danger which should already be a clue did you say that <laughs> yeah those i live with <laughs> i thought
3: he gave some other excuses i was waiting for that yeah but i don't i don't remember him saying that i
1: remember the line specific the, one of the lines being among the lines of like if I the, the 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 family we live with would be in danger. It's either that or it's Robin. One of the two, but one of them references the people we live with, and I'm like, well, already you know, there's more than two people in the house, <laughs> and we'll get into we'll get into Alfred. And how he plays into this, because I have a feeling that Alfred's been letting people into the Batcave far before Vicki Vale. (laughs) Yeah.
3: We also find out that uh, Commissioner Gordon has deputized both Batman and Robin. They're not vigilantes. Yeah,
1: they're duly elected uh, uh, officers of the law, which gets around a censorship of the time for television and for film that would have... Um, not allowed Batman to be a masked vigilante who's wanted by the police because the police need to be the upstanding of law and order. You Batman can't...
3: says in that scene, we respect the police. Or yep. some, something along those lines.
1: No, Burt oh, Ward goes, support your police. Support your police, yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, ah, oh, that line didn't age well today, did it? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, we then get the... Uh, the... Uh, the press conference leaves, and they go into like, wh- who could be behind this? And he's like, "I, I was bullshitting them, Commissioner. We're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that fucking boat went." <laughs> and uh, they pull up on the supercomputer of some kind that existed in the sixties, I guess. What lone criminals are still, uh, are still at large in Gotham? We go through the Penguin. That uh, that that flipper that that flipper that flipper-handed fiend or like what the line is the Riddler, the, the Joker, Joker. Yeah. and then they go Catwoman too. <laughs> uh, and I think
3: it's a Catwoman later, but yeah, they
1: got to Catwoman at the end. They looked at it all, but they assume initially that it's just Penguin, Riddler, and Joker. Yeah, because
3: because <laughs> the Joker's or the Riddler's riddles. Yeah. Out everything yeah
1: yeah exactly and then that's when we get our int- our big villain ro- uh, we get our first legion of doom which has a different name on the sign <laughs> uh and they have like a little squid emblem <laughs> for them with a little beak um and we get a wonderful batman villain conversation between the four of them and when i say wonderful batman villain conversation in, in the context of the show and the movie it's pretty fun like yeah they're all interacting with each other. They're bickering, much like villains will end up bickering in uh, later down the line superhero movies, but also heroes themselves. Like it's like an innovation that ends up getting developed over time is the heroes bickering with each other. They do it in Batman, but I think it gets perfected with the MCU. Oh um, yeah, arguably, um, we get the established plot that is clearly up to no good. They've they've kidnapped Commodore Schmidlap, and. With the set purpose of kidnapping members of the of a UN equivalent, the the United Security Council, the World Security Council, or something. Yeah. Was basically, diplomats from every corner of the earth meeting up in the UN fashion. Uh, Batman and Robin don't know that yet. We do, but this is their initial plot, and we get Batman and Robin then learn. You know, hey, the boat disappeared because they've had a projector inside there. A projector um, hidden in a buoy. Yeah, exactly, and uh, and this is when we also get the like what, the first of Riddler's many air <laughs> uh, missile riddles. Air ridden missile. Sky Skyrider. Skyriding yeah Skywriting riddles, and the way we get introduced to that is Robin going, "Holy Polaris!" <laughs> and then we see footage of a Polaris missile going up. Yeah. Um, and the plot from there kind of delves into episodic situations that. Going through each one, like n- not all of them are like super integral to the plot, but there are ones that like deal with Batman lore in a sense and, and in a certain respect, like tangentially. The first one of the first ones I wanted to bring up is so Batman's uh, Batman, they the the bad guys established like they, they're going to kidnap Bruce Wayne.
3: In order to succeed in connect or dehydrating the council, they have to get rid of Batman first. So yeah, so they, they plot to use Bruce Wayne as bait.
1: Yeah, so that they can take down Batman and subdue Batman.
3: Well, and, they want bat. They want to lure Batman back to their hideout so he can step on a launching pad and get just shot <laughs> out a window.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost too specific to ever work. Period. Yeah, it's <laughs> very
3: specific and very non-lethal.
1: Yeah, exactly, and also. It, they're they're accounting for the fact that he's just going to not look. he's the world's greatest detective. He's not going to look down at the ground to make sure he's not stepping on a trap. <laughs> yeah. Cuz I don't think Batman's ever stepped on any traps of that nature where they have like completely caught him off guard that I've seen. I don't but.
3: remember, but this version of Batman is not as uh ahead of the villains as he is in the comics,
1: obviously. No, he's actually actually it's funny. He's like he, he actually does detective work in the movie technically.
3: He does, yeah. Um, but he's also like pretty gullible. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's a
1: he's a he's a nice, sweet guy, Brad. He's 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 a nice Batman. He's not he he's not he's not gonna do what we saw in that Pattinson trailer. <laughs> he's certainly not going to do. Where are they? <laughs> and he's not gonna punch Caesar. Swear Romero. to me. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm gonna tell you. First, let me put back on my mustache. <laughs> um, and uh, but. Catwoman disguises herself as Kitan, uh, of Kitka, and um, they never give Catwoman an actual name uh, like Selina Kyle. Right? She's just Catwoman. That Catwoman's her actual name. Kitka is is her is her side yeah, deal. I
3: might be wrong, but I don't think Selina Kyle became her name until Batman Returns. I, I don't think she had a name in the comics either. But I could be wrong.
1: I, I'm 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 not familiar with it either. Selina Kyle is my go to name. Primarily because of Batman Returns, but also knowing what some comics have done down the line, I think actually Batman. I thought the Dark Knight Returns called her selena Kyle, so maybe that's it too. I don't know. Yeah, maybe.
3: I might be misremembering, but yeah, yeah, as far as I know, like in the f- 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 you know fifties and sixties, uh Catwoman. I think it's just, just Catwoman. Yeah, it's just Catwoman. So just like Joker's just Joker, you know. Yeah, he's just Joker.
1: He doesn't have a he doesn't have a, a red hood gang origin story yeah. or whatever origin story he feels like telling that day. You know, I would have loved to hear Caesar Romero going, do you want to know? I got hmm. these scars.
3: <laughs> I think Riddler did. I think he was Edward Nashton. Yeah. Before he became Edward Nigma in the forever movie.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, and the, the Kitka Bruce Wayne thing back and forth does set a template down the line for the flirtation that we see on screen between Batman and Catwoman. And in here you still even see it with Batman and Catwoman in their costumes, but this is like a cinematic forebearer to like that trope we then see in Batman Returns, mm. the Dark Knight Rises, and then we'll probably end up seeing some version of it in Matt Reeves's The Batman because isn't Catwoman in that one too? Yeah, yeah. so we have Catwoman in that one, we have Penguin, and we have Riddler. So um, if we do you get- know. If we get the Joker in that one, Brad, this is a secret remake of Batman 66.
3: <laughs> uh, according to the commentary, the reason Bruce Wayne is in this movie so much is because Adam West didn't want to wear the cowl the whole movie.
1: Yeah. Not, not only that, he was also he agreed to do the film under the condition that he would get primarily more screen, on-screen time, too. So, the, Robin never leaves his costume in this movie. I don't think you see him out of that costume once.
3: Uh, when they drive up in the car in the very opening...
1: Yeah, yeah but isn't that also stock footage from the tv show so does that count i don't know is that maybe. or is it?
3: Maybe? well they also like walk into the house and they go out on the bat pools so. yeah i guess so. okay
1: so yeah but you do, but beyond that though dick grayson stays in costume the entire time yeah um and um but burt ward gets a lot to do in this movie he's not completely useless oh, yeah. like he does he solves my fit one of my favorite riddles like what what has four uh what has four letters and right Uh, what? What has yellow skin and rights? A ballpoint banana. <laughs> right. <laughs> My favorite response out of Robin in a movie in, in anything Batman related is that line. <laughs> Th-
3: those aren't good riddles, Zach. No, they are, no, they
1: aren't. They aren't good. Riddles. Again, very contrived. They They are written by. It's the Loret- Look. It's Lorenzo Semple Jr. going like, well, I know how to write comedy, so I'm just going to write contrived riddles so that they can solve it so I can sell this humor.
3: You know? No, it's Lorenzo Semple being like, shit, I got to turn this in on Friday.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do I got in front of me? Ballpoint pen and- It's a six-week uh,
3: production. Script's got to be ready.
1: <laughs> yeah. He tried, oh, you know how he wrote that line. He's like, oh shit, I got to write this line. He grabbed a banana instead of a pen. And he's like, <laughs> Say that he like, gets an actual pet. It's like or Griffin. Uh, <laughs> Peter Griffin. Yeah, Peter Griffin. Ah, oh, crap. Uh, and uh, but but yeah, we get Bruce in the ho- uh, brought to the villains' lair. Bruce actually holds his own <laughs> in a fight, like without the Batman costume on, which is like, kind of cool to see.
3: Uh, no one's suspicious suspicious that this millionaire knows how to fight.
1: <laughs> no, but if he, if if the If the villains that are taken seriously in Batman today don't know who Bruce Wayne is, how do you expect these idiots to know? (laughs) (laughs) That's unreasonable.
3: (laughs) Um, It's also fun seeing uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure uh, everyone else, like Romero and Gorshin, are fighting like doing their own stunts, but Burgess Meredith is replaced by a stunt guy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, that's clearly on its face. Burgess Meredith too. Like it, it, it's interesting as a kid watching that and then seeing Rocky and then just kind of like putting the two together. He really was a solid actor.
3: Yeah. Uh, on the DVD they're saying like he was initially upset that he was remembered as the penguin a lot. Like, fans would come up to him and be like... I can I, imagine so, yeah. I enjoyed you as the Penguin, but I was like, I would have thought people would remember him from Rocky the most, but...
1: Ro- well, Rocky, I think... I Batman's influence and rewatchability through like they, they still kept airing this on television even after it was canceled. They had mm-hmm. it in, in a package. So, like, kids are going to grow up with... The, he's going to remember by the kids for that first. I think people our age are knowing him more for Rocky now. I think that's what happens. You get when you start getting kids of the eighties, that's where that takes off. Cause Batman 66 isn't really prevalent in the eighties. Like, well, yeah, Meredith died in the eighties, right? So. He did. But like, but kids of the eighties are growing up with the first couple of Rocky movies in their in their purview. Um, they're going to have access to watching them at some point. They're going to see it and be like, Oh shit. So, um, but yeah, he had a, he had a Hollywood career prior to this. Like he was, again, he was in a Lubitsch movie. He was in, He was a character actor in several different films. He was not a nobody. Um, And a lot of the reasons for the heftiness of these guest stars is these are stars that are kind of like on the wane, but still carry a a kitsch with them that they can bring to uh, the villain of the week. So like Cesar Romero was a, was a established actor for 20th century Fox, you know, get him again there, you know, like people who grew up with Cesar Romero would be able to see it. Anyway, we have the, the plot of batman uh, of bruce wayne being kidnapped and it it sets up some Selena kyle stuff that will get down the line or some catwoman stuff down the line the other one is penguin infiltrating the batman's lair this comes directly into uh the lore of batman cinema down the line um but the first established thing is is that they he we do see batman get rid of the bomb um <laughs> And actually the bomb thing when he's getting rid of the, I, I'm trying to remember because from last night, the, the bomb is being set off by it's, it's, he's taking it out of the, uh, of the hideout, which is located in this tavern. Right. The
3: villains flee and they yeah. leave behind a bomb for him. Yeah. But Bruce Wayne already escaped, went home, changed back into Batman, came back with Robin.
1: He had a, he had a suit somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, they. Oh yeah,
3: because they're still looking for Commodore Schmidlab. Yeah, they're looking for
1: Commodore Schmidlab. Yeah, Uh, and he gets the bomb and he tries to take it out.
3: Tells Robin to leave.
1: He actually doesn't. He tell Robin to make sure they all evacuate. Yeah, like evacuate all the people in this, all the drunks in this bar. (laughs) Uh, And um, actually, even before that, we also get them climbing up the uh, the side of the building. Right. That's
3: when he. Looks through the window, sees the bomb, and yeah. tells Robin to beat it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then um, takes it on, takes matters into his own hands.
1: Yep. And we get um uh, we get Batman running around with the bomb. He first avoids a three-piece band playing "Bringing in the Sheeds, <laughs> which you'll hear in a more sinister tone in the night who Hun- the the in the Night of the Hunter episode, sung by Robert Mitchum. But uh, avoids and then, some nuns, some yep. ducks, babies, babies. Keppel making out on a boat (laughs) and then he says the line
0: Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb
1: Uh, and from there uh, the bomb goes off we think Batman might be dead but oh no it's not. Luckily I was behind these (laughs) heavy iron bars. (laughs) Squatting right next to where Robin's
3: standing and Robin can't see him.
1: Yeah (laughs) it's 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 one step away from being a batman vaudeville show in certain points of the show and in the movie's existence uh but this is also when, but then again this is when penguin comes up disguised as commodore schmidlap and batman and robin decide to just go along with this
3: <laughs> Well, yeah they they recognize it's like, they, they recognize this is it's penguin. penguin like they yeah. huddled together and like this is penguin right i'm not crazy
1: yeah and you're like no no you're not young board that uh, this guy thinks we're idiots,
3: <laughs> but their plan is like, okay, if we string him along, we can find out where the rest of the villains are.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll string him along. We'll bring him into the ca- we'll bring him into the cave, but obviously they're not going to let him see how to get to the cave, so they give him the the bat knockout gas, and then they give him the bat wake up gas to wake. Him. <laughs> so, many, so many, so much technology, Brad, <laughs> in this utility belt in this car. Um, I don't even think. Nolan Batman has this much access to equipment, and he had the whole R&D department under Lucius Fox. <laughs> um, and so uh, Penguin is let into the Batcave. Now, I don't want to hear anybody argue about Alfred letting Vicky into the Batcave because Batman's let people into his own cave before. <laughs> well,
3: again, two different...
1: Two different eras, but still. <laughs> yeah. like, And also... It's upped again in Batman Forever when the Riddler and uh, uh, Two Face invade Wayne Manor, and because uh, Riddler already figures out at that point that Batman is Bruce Wayne.
3: Yeah, now I was just remembering that the TV show itself—I'm pretty sure a lot of times villains ended up in the Batcave.
1: It would make sense, like they—they just—they weren't beholden to a myth or a lore. Like the cave doesn't matter so long as you don't take off that mask. It um, may
3: not have been a thing in the comics until the seventies really I mean, he goes back to his dark roots yeah
1: where they're just like nobody knows where this fucking cave is nobody's yeah. getting in this cave um, but they get into the cave and Penguin has brought in some very uh, uh, cle- he snuck in some contraband yeah he did in the form of five guinea pigs uh, that he dehydrated with the dehydrating technology that's going to come into play and we think we're going to get they delay the big Biff-Pow-Zam fight for the very end. We think we're going to get it here because we've always gotten this with the goons in the TV show, but they fucking disappear (laughs) in an instant. (laughs)
3: Well, the the penguin screwed up and super hydrated them, so they were unstable in that any kind of contact with other matter.
1: With the super hard water that we use in the back. (laughs) Hard water comes out of the fucking tap, Brad.
3: (laughs) We well, had soft and hard, but the penguin got the hose on the switch and it cranked yeah, it the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, he
1: cranked it the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Burgess Meredith is a goof. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I've got hard water, Brad. You've got hard water. We gotta stop drinking the water out of the fucking tap. <laughs> hard water. We might fucking just disintegrate. Like our atoms will just combust. And he, can... I love that Robin asks, like, "Well, they, they will." You're saying they'll never come back again. And Batman goes, "Not in this universe." <laughs> and that. That suggests
3: even, he already knows about the multiverse. Yeah.
1: Ex- not, it's that, and it's also chilling. <laughs> it's just going like, Batman's like, this. I don't think you ever get away with this on the TV show. In the movie, he's just like, death is coming for us all, Robin.
3: <laughs> they're not only dead. They're in a horrible alternate universe.
1: You think the Phantom Zone is a hell on Earth? Just wait until you've gone into a whole other plane of existence, Robin. <laughs> This is this is a movie from 1966. It's supposed to be a comedy, and we're fucking dealing with
3: antimatter, antimatter, <laughs> parallel universes.
1: Yeah, and and I'm sure Burgess Meredith is looking at the script, going like, "Okay, these are words, and I can say them. Done." <laughs> Not too dissimilar from how Star Wars actors deliver Star Wars dialogue. They're just like, "Oh, it's insert Star Wars stuff here." <laughs> um, so but, then,
3: yeah, he's <laughs> still there, and then they Batman Robin double down on. Believing that he's Schmidlap.
1: Yeah, they're just like, we're so sorry, Commissioner or C- Commodore.
3: Despite Penguin revealing that he is not Commodore Schmidlap during the fight, <laughs> the Penguin is very confused right now.
1: Yeah. The Penguin's getting...
3: But he has been lured into a false sense of security. <coughs>
1: the, pe- the Penguin is being gaslit <laughs> by Batman, <yeah. Patton. laughs> Which... Um,
3: and then they let him steal the Batmobile. <laughs> yeah,
1: they let him steal the Batmobile. And we get to the climax of the film where, by the way, they've been in a submarine, uh, by this point in the film. <laughs> and they get a, they have in the submarine uh it has penguin flippers on the bottom on the back of it.
3: <laughs> I was confused, like they had the layer on the dock and then they've also had a layer in the submarine.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they moved the submarine one eventually to uh, transport what they get from the World Security Council, which
3: and fire off missiles.
1: Yeah, and that revelation comes after a big backcopter chase that ends with them conveniently landing on a foam rubber at a foam rubber convention. Yep, <laughs> uh, and and the sign next to it says "Foam Rubber in Its Raw State," <laughs> <laughs> and. They figure out through another sky riddle that it's the U, uh, the U.S. Security Council, which also Penguin and Joker point out very correctly at certain points. Riddler is messing up by giving these riddles. Oh, yeah, he's trying to get caught. He's absolutely messing with this scheme to get a billion dollars in 1966 money. If he doesn't is,
3: put the riddles out there, Batman never finds them.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what? Frank Gorshin... Is is not thinking this through? Riddler is not thinking this through. Like,
3: unless the script is so deep that you know serial killers want to get caught.
1: Yes. I, I, mm, is sixty six smarter than we think it is? It's already establishing some no. psychosis. No. 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 This, this plot's not deep. It's just literally he does he does give indication towards a psychosis like that, going like I have to, I must. Like, it's not sincere, but it is like just like. Yeah, like that's the Riddler. <laughs> that's what he fucking does. Um, it it feels like even in Batman Forever, he's a little bit more reasonable with his riddles by comparison, because um, it, it he's he's not opposed to getting caught, but he's also doing he's also coming up with better riddles as the other thing.
3: Well, in that movie, it makes more sense because his whole goal is to show Bruce Wayne that he's better than him. Yeah um there's no dynamic like that in this movie yeah no not at yeah. all
1: like there's like Bat- batman and the re- batman and the other villains don't have the same interactions that they will down the line something that the the move- further films end up lifting off of is like okay the fi- the villains are here they're established their histories to a degree now let's actually you know deal with their psychosis between the two of them so like joker being batman's greatest villain is not really a factor in this movie whatsoever. If anything, Joker's like the weakest villain in this movie. <laughs> He's given virtually nothing to do yeah. apart from being a joke for Commodore Schmidt Uh, and then we get the, the villains invading the security council. They dehydrate all the citizens of the world. At one point, the U the USSR representative is banging his shoe on the table. So we're getting a reference to Khrushchev in the fifties. So we're making some political commentary here. Uh, and the whole chase takes them to the high seas where we get them on the submarine, which they circle the submarine and shoot a bat ray at it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it destabilizes it to the point where they're all freaking the hell out. And they are transported up to the surface. And we get our um, our graphic title scene, <laughs> uh, graphic title fight scene. Yeah. A which big, is a s- big
3: water tank fight on the lot. Yeah. Lot.
1: I will say though, Fox a lot. Visuals still look pretty cool. You could tell, but it still looks cool. Like it's not.
3: Yeah, I, I was looking for the seam of the water in the in the back wall with the painted clouds, and it was pretty.
1: Yeah. Pretty well done. There is one shot where you can see the water is green, <laughs> and it's the coverage of the villains, and you can see clearly behind them. There's like a green hue in the water, so either the water is green or something in the lighting is green. Um, but regardless, we get our fight.
3: Yeah, I learned uh, on the commentary. They talked about one of the stunt guys, the henchman, uh, got punched off the boat, took a dive into the water, and smashed his head on a like cone, like under the water. It's like a three foot, three foot shallow depth in that tank, but there's like some kind of concrete spire that he smashed his head on. So like, the fight ends, and they're like, you know, where's Hank? Yeah, and it, like guess like within a five seconds of realizing like one of their stunt guys is missing. Yeah. They all dove in the water trying to find him and he had to go to the hospital, get his like head stitched up and mm-hmm. it's pretty, uh, pretty mm-hmm. scary stuff.
1: Yeah. Just, just that's a curse set right there. Now if we're, if we're going to go off of the history of curse sets mm-hmm. where something bad happens,
3: but that could have been anybody. Yeah. Like even Adam Weston, brew work. Cause they're doing that scene too.
1: <laughs> Adam looks at that and he's just like, do you realize I could have died? <laughs> Do I want to keep playing this character? <laughs> I mean, it's not like it'll affect me in any other negative way. <laughs>
3: it's a ma- ma- it's, impre- it's not impressive. It's still kind of shocking, like, how, despite being a studio production, how, yeah, how unsafe much, and, they still are in the 66.
1: Yeah, and it's still, this is still the era where everything is literally what you see on screen is an actual thing happening, and it's not a computer backing it up, so when you hear a story like that, it plays in conjunction with all of the different, like Mad 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 world had a series of stunts like that. It feels like Mad 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 world was much more safety guideline strict compared to Madman 66. But again, also they're working on a lower budget than Mad 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 world. And they're working on a tight schedule working off of the limited resources that Fox is providing for them. Like, cause it's not the same as what they're going to put into a My Fair Lady. Uh, they're, they're they're working with what they have, and that is a sad consequence of that. Um, uh, it's absolutely inexcusable that it was allowed to have that kind of safety factor involved that could cause hurt.
3: Yeah, I'm just I, I'm just surprised like how that could be overlooked. Like
1: I don't know. I think like, if
3: you're planning a stunt where people are diving off the boat, you would not have any objects? Yeah, in their path. That that's yeah. that's. I mean, six weeks probably just rushed it.
1: Yeah. And now Catwoman's not in this fight, though. Um, really, not 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 really. She's, Cats are afraid of water, so y- yeah, exactly. She doesn't want to fall in there like that stuntman. Um, <laughs> she's she's pushing people off. Yeah, she's yeah. she's 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 contributing to the villains' cause, whatever. Um, in the love plot, it was suggested that Bruce and Kit Kitka are having uh, have feelings for each other, quote unquote, or at least Bruce has feelings for Kitka. Kitka Kit, is Catwoman; she doesn't care. She'll just send off little morse code messages on a cat morse code detection yeah <laughs> i love the gadgets of the villains too <laughs> um actually in their lair you can see uh um, shelves where they have like jokes riddles
3: <laughs> you know what's funny that i d- didn't notice before is uh there's that one part where they're looking through the periscope and lemur was doing the the like the weird meow yeah. thing and then like the other henchman is next to her and he just kind of looks over at her like what are, you, what are you vocalizing right now?
1: These these guys did not sign up for these kind of eccentrics. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's like it's like she improvised that, and he's just like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, like, shut <laughs> <"Sure>
1: up! <laughs> That's dumb. That, even, that sounds like a diseased cat. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not like the penguin who actually kind of sounds like a penguin. You know, wah, 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 but your, yours is just off. Uh, Eartha Kitt's better than you. <laughs> Um so, yeah, or, yeah, no, she, I guess it would have been uh Julie Newmar at that point. Yeah.
3: So yeah, she escapes into the bowels of the submarine trips and her mask falls off.
1: Yep, and, and Batman is heartbroken. <laughs> and there's like this almost
3: has the tear next to his eye. Yeah,
1: and he's just like, No, it's okay, it's okay. I'm a man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Batman. Don't let her see you cry. Don't no, let her see you cry. <laughs> and uh and she's good so like, No, no, it's it's all on the line of duty and they cuff her. And they discover the dehydrated remains in, of the World Security Council in vials. The blue one, by the way, is shorter than what it pops up in later on. <laughs> like the 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 size is off, um, and but they then go to, it, yeah. it, it's teetering on the edge. Brad, and then
3: and bubbling, bumbling cartoon Commodore Schmidt laps <laughs> runs out, bumps into everybody, and
1: he's there to cause chaos. <laughs> Which, by the way, he is played by uh, Reginald Denny. This was his final role. Um, why was he on the submarine? Because he
3: was he was in that fake submarine room that the Joker set up.
1: He they they moved him at some point because he's initially in the lair at the tavern, and they have that one henchman whose job is only to simulate being on a boat. Right,
3: but like, why they move him onto the submarine? He's doesn't do anything for the rest of the movie. Like he's not so he doesn't to...
1: escape and go. Like I say, I've kind of been somewhere I can't account for. Maybe some world's greatest detectives can solve the mystery. And they go, well, say it must be the Joker's submarine. <laughs> like,
3: it seems I'm... like he, they could have just left him in the room and have that henchman watch him.
1: Again, I don't know what the. <laughs> what the what what the what the what the logic point of it is that he's there to provide the play, like hey we took the technology from this guy and now we're going to keep him here so that he doesn't run to the police or something um, but Reginald Denny we've seen him before as Frank Crowley and Rebecca um, we talked about him on uh, may, may have talked about him on Cha I don't think we brought up really Frank Crowley beyond like a few mentions but he's also in the locket uh, which is a Fabulous noir, and my favorite brunette. He's in an and Costello Meet Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. This is among his last performances. He plays Commodore Schmidt. Lab. Um, he's fun. He, he doesn't get much to do. He's not like he's, you know, like in, he's not really integral to the plot unless it needs it to. Like when he knocks over these vials, and thankfully the Bat Cave has a bat uh, has a molecular dust separator machine. <laughs> Soup specific (laughs) good thing batman thinks ahead yeah and we get um actually we haven't even talked about alfred like beyond mentioning his name but alan napier huge legend before prior to being on batman it seems like alfred's always have kind of like a legacy like a like a like a a history attached to them and some forth because you have uh oh god um michael goff in the bat in the burton ones and then you have Michael Caine, obviously, uh, playing uh, in the Nolan ones. And then Jeremy Irons, obviously, has his own legacy. But
3: Alan Napier was... Sean Pertwee in Gotham. and Yeah. Uh, Matt Reeves is going to have...
1: Uh, Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis, yeah. Um, but Alan Napier, we've talked about him before on Marnie.
3: Yeah, from Zimbalist Jr. for the anime series, sorry.
1: Oh, there we go. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Alan Napier, who plays Alfred in this, um, he's in My Fair Lady, uh, he's in The Blue Veil, he's in The Highwayman. Alan Napier was in Marnie. Um, but anyway, they get the dust separated. Um, and But there's a twist. There's a twist, <laughs> yes. When they rehydrate them, all the world leaders come out speaking different languages. And Batman uses this as an excuse to let the world solve its problems for itself. <laughs>
3: uh yeah he rationalizes that by understanding each other's languages that maybe they'll be closer to peace
1: yeah exactly and and it's like, an interesting message to stick in the middle of this silly batman movie <laughs> and they go like we gotta leave but inconspicuously through yeah. the window <laughs>
3: slide out through the 20 story window <laughs> yeah
1: inconspicuously yeah and then it ends but it says the end and then it goes the living end <laughs> and that's it uh william dozier production we get our cast and that's Batman, nineteen sixty six. Now, uh, the film uh, had to make about three point two million to make its budget back, and it ended up making three point nine million, which is roughly about thirty million today. Uh, and its critical reception—I wasn't able to find anything like of the era specifically, but like the modern critics kind of have like the best beat on this film that we're gonna have, which is. Unlike other attempts at bringing these characters to life, and this comes from Bill Gibran of FilmCritic.com, unlike other attempts at bringing these characters to life, the TV cast really captures the inherent insanity of the roles. And then Variety, um, actually there was one from Variety stating in their review, uh, the intense, innocent enthusiasm of Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, and Frank Gorshin as the three criminals is balanced against the innocent calm of Adam West and Burt Ward, Batman and Robin, respectively. So we have the one variety response. And, and
3: As silly as it is, like all those actors are committed. Like they give it their all. Yeah. And and they, no one's phoning it in there. Yeah.
1: They're, they're doing what Dozier instructed them to do from the creation of this show, which is overplay it. They are overplaying it, and actually Adam West, I like him as Batman to certain degrees or another because he does present a calm that Batman would have after all those years of crime fighting and having to having to teach robin um and the legacy of this film is that of uh, as we discussed earlier at the top, up until a certain point, this was the only way to really experience the Batman uh TV show in any form form or fashion but there were other things that came after this. One also is uh, Return to the Batcave, which is a TV movie where Adam West and Burt Ward are in it trying to solve a mystery surrounding the behind the scenes of the show while telling the behind the scenes of the show. <laughs> Have you ever seen it, Brad? Uh, I haven't, but it might be on the Blu-ray. It, if it's not on the Blu-ray, you might be able to find this on YouTube. I saw this back in 2008, and it is goofy as all hell. But I kind of love the wraparounds with, uh, with Adam West and Burt Ward are fun because it actually gives them a mystery to solve. But then they go into that TV movie territory of like the true story behind Batman and Robin. This is the only TV movie of that nature that like actually has something innovative behind it. Whereas the other ones are just like, oh, the the true story of the three stooges produced by Mel Gibson, except no, <laughs> like it's kind of bullshit. Um, But then also the animated realm brought, Adam and Bert back to the forefront with Batman Return of the Cape Crusader, uh directed D V D and Batman vs. Two Face, which was originally an episode of the television show that they weren't able to do. Or I, I can't remember what the reason was for it, but it was it just like it was too like
3: I think it was just um you know, they got cancelled before they could get to yeah, it. Yeah, before they could get to it, but yeah. they were
1: get, but they had William Shatner playing Two Face.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, he was stuck on Star Trek, but yeah, it's also uh, Adam's Adam West's last performance
1: is Batman. Yeah, his last performance is Batman. So Batman, he played Batman up to the bi- up to the very end, and unfortunately, Adam and Bert for a period were so typecast and relegated that there was disrespect thrown at them. Uh, In that regard, I think that one of those legacies that you can take from typecasting is like we talked about how Vincent Price has positive typecasting in his career. This is an example of negative typecasting. And one of the things that being in a superhero movie does still carry to this day is uh, typecasting uh, in a way that limits actors, Um, because I've I've noticed this in Chris Hemsworth, where Chris Hemsworth doesn't get the credit he deserves for his comic ability, Um, because I don't know whether it's the properties or not, but like. You know his his post Thor output isn't always like of the like superb caliber, um. And then some like uh, I was
3: gonna say like I think the Ghostbusters I like him in Ghostbusters Ghostbusters and Men in Black International I think I still haven't seen Men in Star- Black
1: International so
3: I mean it's not great but definitely they recognize that he can do comedy so
1: yeah and then also Extraction which was his more recent output uh, the dramatic yeah yeah. Uh, but also like Chris Evans has been able to, has been able to break the stereotype because he kind of already broke that stereotype in different ways with Scott Pilgrim prior. Yeah. Um,
3: like in the fantastic four, he was already, the, already like comic comedic relief. And now he's doing like knives out dramatic stuff. So
1: yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and uh, Burt
3: Ward and Adam West seem pretty okay with it now. Oh yeah. Well in the I commentary, they acknowledge like, you know, why wouldn't you want to be known forever for playing these characters? Like right. it's, it's an honor.
1: Yeah. I feel like Bert's the one that's kind of received the shit end the most because Adam West was able to find other things to do in his career. Obviously, he found a niche in Family Guy lore yeah. where he's playing a hyped up version of himself. Um, and then, yeah, the uh, the and the legacies of these character actors who played the villains also endured. In fact, I think the like until Rocky, a way you know Burgess Meredith beyond the Golden Age of Hollywood is through Batman. Uh, Cesar Romero absolutely so um, and I think Frank Gorshin Frank Gorshin was really smart because he managed to find a niche in these television shows that have ended up having lasting impressions on people whether it's Batman or Star Trek um, and Lee Merriweather you know she's one of the many Catwomen we've had in, in history and she's the first cinematic equivalent a, a version of it so she beats Al Michelle Pfeiffer and Anne Hathaway and. I can't remember who's playing her in the Matt Reeves one. I think it's like Zoe Kravitz or something. But um, And the Penguin as a character, there's this version of it. And then we get like Bat- Tim Burton sees that and goes like, well, what if I like took it too literally <laughs> and gave us Danny DeVito and whatnot? But like it serves sort of the film's lasting legacy. As a Batman movie, it sets the template of just like, okay, this is the first step to Establishing that Batman can work at the box office, even if it's just breaking even. and that, But it also sets it up for a weird uh, uphill battle in terms of getting Batman 89 made because somebody like Michael Uslan has to convince people that you can make a different version of Batman because that's the only thing it has going for it. I think one of those things that this film sets up is in terms of the golden age of Hollywood, this is a movie that's being used to coincide with the television show this was being done as early as television with radio some radio shows that were moving into television getting their own feature film adaptations like our miss brooks or my friend irma and uh cross media promotion has always existed so long as there's two mediums fighting with each other now we live in a world where streaming fights with theatrical fights with physical media fights with radio fights with everything you know so like the 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 tears are all the, like everything's cross mixed. But I think this one is a good example of the, uh, the amount of cross media promotion you see with comic books and superhero movies to this day, because what is everybody talking about right now? Winter Soldier and WandaVision uh, for Falcon and Winter Soldier and WandaVision, which is you had a movie series <laughs> from MCU that set up the, uh, anticipation for a show like WandaVision or Falcon and Winter Soldier. The difference between this and Batman 66 is Batman 66 carries off of the phenomenon, which is already established in television and goes to film. And in this, it's the opposite with MCU. Um, and it also, frankly, I I think that you... You had to get Batman on screen at some point in a way that wasn't those serials, and I think that this was the next logical step. Um, And then the next stepping stone for that is Richard Donner going like, well, I'm going to make a sincere Superman movie and not make it campy, and establishes that superheroes with sincerity can work, then leads to Batman being able to be changed. I also think that this film establishes that it it is okay to have humor in superhero movies. Um, this isn't the best example when it comes to that statement, <laughs> because this movie is goofy as all hell. But I do think it reassures you that you can have fun with your superheroes, even as you're being sincere with them.
3: Yeah. I mean, Marvel's prove that. I mean, the Ragnarok's probably the funniest one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. While also or, pushing or, the narrative forward. Yeah. So. Or even guardians or, Ant-Man, yeah, guardians, you know? definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and, the uh, and I do think that like actually even the I'll take this even into the Dark Knight. Nolan looks at looks at humor with the Joker, which has had a different progression path that starts with Romero and goes into Nicholson. And he goes, like, well, this Joker's not going to tell too many jokes. But I've got one good one. And it's the pet, the magic pencil, <laughs> which is kind of a dumb joke until he turns it into a nightmare. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um and uh and the and again with this new Matt Reeves, the Batman, we're getting three of these four villains in the same movie again. So sort of circling back in a weird way. Um, But I do think it also like points to the fact that like at the time with this, that this was made, we don't have the level of superhero output we have today. So this was like a flash in the pan for people. It's amazing how like, this is technically the first cinematic stepping stone apart from like a Superman movie that was made in conjunction with the George Reeves show. Really are the those are the two first stepping stones to the world we live in today, a world where everybody argues about the merits between superhero blockbuster films versus art house cinema. And to be honest, there's an art to this as well. You know, it's a different type of art. It's pop art, uh, which is sort of what, in a certain way, that superhero films today are. They're pop art, but they're still art. Um, but. If you would have thought that in 1966 that this is tech, this is amongst the things that would technically kick off the wave we had now, nobody would have believed you. <laughs> um, it it establishes before Golden Age Hollywood dies, it sets up one last established uh, innovation that then has blossomed into something way down the line. Like it's the it's the long wait on a on a tiny seed that grows into a big ass tree. <laughs> um, so there is kind of a path to it, and it also establishes grabbing. Known actors in these villain roles, to cap off of that, Nicholson was your get for the Joker. Devito, I like, was not new, but he wasn't super popular when he got cast as the Penguin. I don't think. Like, oh yeah,
3: he was big on Taxi. Well, and Taxi,
1: just... yes, but like movie wise, you know, he's not. I guess the it was ninety two. He got a. He was even directing movies
3: in the eighties. Okay, so. yeah. okay, yeah. Okay, then he was big. Yeah.
1: Um, but Jim Carrey got that big push off of ace ventura and dumb and dumber and yeah that, that
3: was only a difference of a year can you imagine like if ace ventura hadn't hit like yeah robin williams would probably be doing that one
1: yeah and jim carrey got paid an insane amount of money for that movie uh tommy lee jones coming off of the fugitive you got yeah. an oscar-winning actor right there let's stick him in batman um heath ledger as the joker established actor but you're taking a chance nolan kind of seemed to took Took, took chances with his villains because Gillian Murphy's not a known actor, really. Like, he's not a big ass name. Yeah. Um, Heath Ledger is probably the most known person that he put in a movie at that time, mm. villain wise.
3: Because I mean, Liam Neeson and Raz Al He's
1: not, yeah, I guess he is the main villain. Yeah. You know? I guess, yeah. I mean,
3: Heath Ledger had only done, like, The Patriot and Brokeback Mountain.
1: No, he did 10 Things I Hate About You and Night's and, Tale. But those aren't, like, huge. Night's Tale was pretty fucking big. <laughs> I don't remember. I remember. <laughs> he also had the brothers' Grimm. Oh wait, that's not a good example. Um <laughs> Casanova.
3: Okay, he wasn't in a, a ton of like breakout stuff.
1: He had he had a following. <laughs> uh but uh and then Well, I guess actually Anne Hathaway is Catwoman. Uh yeah, Dirt she Madness. definitely had a lot yeah, of stuff. Definitely had part of that a reputation. But she's also not the villain.
2: Yeah,
3: Tom Hardy had a string of breakout roles, so yeah, he was established.
1: Or, yeah, um, but uh, or Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor in Batman v Superman, he would already been established as that Social Network guy. Yeah, already in the Squid and the Whale guy, Zombie Land guy. So they're just like, oh well, let's have him do the Social Network thing here. <laughs> um, and uh, but yeah, so there there are ways that Batman sixty six kicks off trends in its own way. I think the most important thing it establishes is that you can take these characters off the page. You can transplant them off the page. In the case of Batman 66, they transplanted it off of the page as it existed at that time. And now we virtually do that with every comic property. If you can't adhere to some form of the fan mythology there, then there are riots in the streets or digital streets. That is. Um, so Brad, Brad, what do you what What do you think? Uh, what do you, What are your final thoughts on Batman sixty six as we wrap up? And what what kind of place does it have today in uh, a world for, where we have a lot of Batman things?
3: Um, I think it's easy to get lost because it's it's weird, you know. I am almost forty, and just like watching, you know, growing up, I cared about the stuff that my parents liked, mm-hmm. and I definitely see like people younger than me not care about anything that's older than them yeah um, so I think without people like Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman like reminding people how I mean if you listen to their Hollywood Babylon stuff right now like it's the, the quality of the show like isn't keeping their interest yeah <laughs> you know like it's pretty much like Ralph Garman knows a lot of trivia about it yeah and then kevin's just like this isn't what i remember as <laughs> like watching as a kid like yeah um but like it you know it it it's place in history is that show that was so frustrating to michael uselin that he's waged a 10-year campaign yeah. to put a different batman on screen yeah um And so in a twisted way without it, like that doesn't happen.
1: Yeah. Without it, you may have a harder time pitching Warner brothers or, um, uh, John Peters on making a Batman movie.
3: Yeah. But for 20 years prior to that, it was still like an enjoyable piece of pop art for people like Ralph Garman and Kevin Smith as children. Yeah. So, you know, comic books are a medium that embrace, you know, different creators and different artists um,
1: different styles different, different moods too
3: yeah so it, it's kind of ridiculous to me that people feel that they need to limit themselves to like only one vision yeah. for a character you know i think it's cool like with ninja turtles like that's a whole property that you know kevin eastman and peter laird only did a handful of the comics themselves uh once they got to like 72 of the books they'd had plenty of different artists come in and interpret their material and write different storylines and draw them differently Yeah, um, in a short amount of time. And, you know, Batman had long runs of the same writers and artists yeah. for a while. Um, nowadays, that's like, you know, you get a year to do it and then you're off and someone yeah. else is doing it. But back then, you know, the same artists were like there for three to f- four years, you know? Yeah. Uh, writing, drawing. So, yeah, when people... Dig their heels into, like, this is my Batman. I kind
1: of like, yeah. Just like, well, like, yeah, but your dad's Batman was just as important because your dad's Batman might have given you the inspiration to even look at Batman.
3: He's a fictional character that's made up. It's just like, yeah, he can be be whatever he needs to be to tell like a good story. Yeah, it's a show I think people should revisit once in a while. It's you know, the stories aren't terribly engaging. In this movie, you know, my mind was wandering quite often, but.
1: If you can tune your brain into camp humor, you'll have a blast with this show. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It is charming. It is like a, a great spotlight into like how material was interpreted. Yeah. Uh, in that time. But, um,
1: and it's, yeah, and it shows an interesting tr- progression between watching this and say watching, uh, uh, bad, bad, the dark Knight. If you, if you were to watch these two side by side and just realize how many, how much time had to take place before, material would get treated with sincerity. Um,
3: and also if you want to appreciate forever in Batman and Robin some more, like watch these side by side yeah. and see, you know, don't dismiss the Schumacher ones that much because um, they're actually drawing upon this quite heavily.
1: Yeah. And they're drawing off of actual errors of Batman that existed. It's quite not faithfully. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Uslan actually is the one who points that out in the behind the scenes of Batman and Robin. He sums up the four, er- the four different films and which eras they're based on. And it's it's super accurate. Yeah, it's totally. almost like we should have gotten Michael Uslan on the show too. But
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have his interview on our Realness podcast. But uh, yeah, Tim Burton didn't watch the show or read the comics. They gave and, him uh, Frank Miller's comic, and then he made his thing.
1: Well, I also saw the I also saw the Killing Joke, and I was like, and the killing well, joke. What, what if? What if I just drew my version of Batman, and then I got Jack Nicholson to run around and. <laughs> And you know, what if I made a boy who has scissors for hands? And I wonder if I made Charlie and the chocolate factory somehow less tolerable. (laughs) Um, Brad, thank you so much for coming down to talk about Batman 66.
3: Yeah. Thanks for letting me find a silly movie to.
1: Yeah, dude. No, this was fun.
3: Screw up your classy show. No, (laughs) that's
1: not. Anyway. Yeah. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of yesteryear Ballyhoo review. You can find out more about us on the tag at the end of the show uh, coming up uh, with the newer episodes, this is kind of the last of the big bulk that I'm recording. Uh, but we will have Jack Hanley on for Night of the Hunter, uh, and I can confirm that the pop uh, pop culture brews gentlemen Andrew Sanders and Tyler maybe will be back to talk about Edward G. Robinson for a slight case of murder. So a little bit of comedy with your capers there. So have some fun with that. Um, but until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.